Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out what you, this is what happens on Thanksgiving. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out what, what we do at officehours.global. If you've got questions, we've got questions. We, we're, all we're doing is questions. It's, it's, the, it's Thanksgiving. I've got my Lindsay plaid on, so it's officially the holidays. Uh, it's, this is not my Christmas. Uh, I mean, people are like, why is he wearing Christmas on Thanksgiving? It's not. It's my, my family, my family tartan. So anyway. The clan so the, tartan. The clan tartan. It's the green and the red. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. So, but but um, it does mean that LL Bean makes our our shirt every couple of years, so that we get really good versions of our tartan. Anyway, so um, uh, if you uh, have got questions, go ahead and throw them in. Uh, you can throw them in using this little QR code here. Uh, this is, uh, or you can just go to askofficehours.global and ask those questions any time of the day. So, anytime you think of them, hmm, I, I have a question. You can just throw them right in immediately using askofficehours.global, and then we feed them all into the show. Uh, in the morning. And so, um, and I think that we'll try to figure out how to just let us know when uh, we've handed it off to Bill. I think there was a confusion about who's who's hosting. Bill should host today. Um, and uh, and so I think that, so, so anyway, so the, um, uh, but it doesn't matter. We'll, but we'll jo- go ahead and uh, it, it jump into the first question. Um, let's go ahead to the question, Mitch. I thought I was hosting. Uh, first question, Alex, is from... Um, <laughs> We're not only is it, I'm not hosting, but it's my question. So here it comes. It's so As it's Thanksgiving in the U.S., uh, what are you most thankful for over the past year? Go ahead, Mitchell. Oh, I'm up. Um, I'm ha- I'm happy to be here, right here with my friends and uh, and the folks that support us every day. That's that's a, that's a very serious thing. For a while, I wasn't, and now I am, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. So I'll call that as my favorite thing this year. Go ahead, John. I'm most thankful for my beautiful wife who's standing right here doing dishes so I can be on the show and <laughs> hang out with you guys. Uh, Courtney? I'm most thankful that I saved enough money during my working years to buy all the junk that we see on this show and try it out <laughs> so you folks don't have to. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, I would have been in my earlier years thankful for all of the equipment and things like that that allow me to do this. But I, as I get older, I realize... It ain't the stuff ever. It's the people. So, again, I'm thankful for office hours. Alex, thank you so much for beginning this because in in the beginning of the pandemic, I think all of us kind of felt like, oh, our lives are shutting down. Maybe for a few months. Remember that? Those early days? (laughs) Maybe it'll – and then all of a sudden – Chris Fenwick pinged me and said, this thing is happening. And the next thing you know, I'm in this. And I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed being here. And it's the people. It's all these years. I'm thinking back, you know, many people who were here early and then are gone now uh, from all over the planet. And it feels like friendships and connections would not have been anywhere close to what they are in my life now if it hadn't been for this and the expansion of technology and the way that it connects individuals that otherwise wouldn't spend time together. So I'm thankful for this. I'm amazingly thankful for my wife without whom none of this becomes possible. And even for Charlie, my dog, for keeping me, you know, having somebody who unconditionally cares for me every single minute of existence. Go ahead, Mitchell. And nicely said, Bill, by the way. I'm thankful that Wegman's last uh, turkey meal uh, was held for me so I can go pick it up after the show. <laughs> Very good. And I'm definitely thankful for uh, for just this, this community um, in my family and just communities. I mean, I think that it's the people in your life, hopefully, that are making a difference. And um, anyway, so I'm, I'm definitely very thankful uh, every Thanksgiving. <laughs> so uh, and I think that, uh, yeah, 
it's this I will say specifically for this community. Uh, you know, I just I I am I'm not no, I'm known for kind of doing something and going, okay, I've done it, and then I move on. Like I'm not I don't really stick around, and um, I kind of move through life going through different things. And I find it fascinating that this was really still effortless. Like I get up in the morning. I mean, there's a little bit of a rush today. I slept in a little bit, so it's a little bit of a rush. But it's a little rush, but it's still fun. I get to go hang out with the crew and uh, and talk about things that I that I really enjoy talking about with people that are worth talking with. You know, you know, like just just really fun to be with, and both in Discord and and uh, and and on the show and so on and so forth. So it's just really, uh, and I've never had a community so big. <laughs> like like I, I usually have a I, at any given time. I'm usually I have a community. I I used to have like a community of three. You know, people that would be like my family and then there'd be a handful of people that I hung out with. And to have such a great community that's so large is really, a, um, I, I don't take it for granted. Uh, next question. And it's coming in from Paul Wallace in Hot Springs, Arkansas for a mesh network in a large home. What is best, the Netgear Orb, RBKE963, Wi-Fi 60 mesh or the Euro Pro E6 or something else? Underline best. I'll hand it to you, Bill. I'll give you the honors there. Oh, okay. Uh, Courtney, you're up first. Um, my, my, I don't use the mesh networks because I've tried them. I don't like them. Uh, my best, uh, the best that thing that I you really do, feel. <laughs> yeah, the best thing I would go with is none of the above, and which is to take uh, two wireless access points, uh, two good routers uh, that are Wi-Fi six, and put one downstairs in the middle of the house that is pretty strong and can serve everything and that has both 2.4 gigahertz and, you know, five gigahertz and maybe even six, uh, and one, uh, run a ethernet cable upstairs and have a second one or another part of the house. I know you've got a big house now there in, uh, in hot springs, um, uh, run a second or maybe a third if you have to upstairs so that you still have wireless coverage over your house but two different access points name them something different so you know which one you're on which one you want to hook up to and uh that's worked for me because uh i've put a separate one for the upstairs and and i hook out all the internet of things stuff to the upstairs one and the downstairs one hook to the downstairs and it's worked quite well uh, mesh networks i've had bad luck with there's a lot of interference a lot of people neighbors that are nearby that I don't know. They just get swamped. Alex? I hate mesh networks, and I have one. I can tell you that I do not like them. Uh, you know, they just, they're they're very unstable. Um, and so so they're not nearly the same as having a Wi-Fi network or a wired network. So, I mean, if you think your Wi-Fi network is a little unstable, get a mesh network, and then you'll really learn what it's like to just have everything not quite work all the time. And it just has not been the thing that I've invested time. It's been good enough that I, that I kind of limped through it, partially because my house has so much Ethernet already built into it that a lot of the things that, I ma- that matter to me aren't connected over Ethernet. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy it again. Um, and so I would really look at getting a couple access points like Courtney. Uh, John Preto. Minus three on the mesh, mesh networks. I used to be in the Wi-Fi business. The, after you use a industrial gate wi-fi and in, in, in this case i would i would go with ubiquity after looking at everything that's out there and the price cost the ubiquity dream machine router and then their wi-fi access points out to each drop that you want coverage and that's the way to go there you go mitchell are you in line with everybody else uh, sort of uh i i guess i agree uh paul i have the orby netgear that you're mentioning there 
And as a mesh network, I guess it's doing pretty well. But as a Wi-Fi connection, it's okay. It's not great. I live in a condo, and there's a lot of people vying for uh, different frequencies at different times. I wish I could go back to my old airport. Uh, the airport seemed to work very well back in the day. Maybe it's because there were less people using them, but that's what I like the most. Yeah, I still have an airport up in the corner of my room here, and that's what I'm using to get um, the wired network here in my office off to the bedroom and things like that. It's okay. You know, I, I, I just think all of them that rely on Wi-Fi meshes or at least something to be desired. I have the same experience everybody else here does. Let's go to the next question. Scott Hancock in Tokyo, uh, following on yesterday's conversation, do we wonder if Apple could sell even more units of an iCam 16? Would the many people at the aspiring level of production buy more of them, if not paying for the phone hardware? And it seems like he's talking iCam 16 as the next iPhone, actually. Alex, what do you think? It really is an iCam right now. Um, a couple of things. One is it's hard to get your head around the sheer size of the number of sales of Apple of iPhones. Um, I don't remember what the number is, but it's in the 75 million or something like that. We're just, as filmmakers, we are a, a drop in the bucket. You know, in this in this uh, in this world, and so I don't think it would make any significant change to their sales. It would mean that they'd have to build a skew for a for for Apple a very small number. Um, so building skews, you know, companies building skews for small numbers of people is really inefficient for them. Um, and so um, I, I remember talking to someone who makes cameras, and I was trying to sell them on this idea of a new newfangled camera, and they said, "Do you think we can sell two thousand of them? Because we can't even turn this crank unless we can sell two thousand. I think I said I think you make it profitable. It doesn't matter. Like they were like, it doesn't matter. We have to sell two thousand, and that's a small company compared to Apple. <laughs> you know, so in this case, Apple would probably have to think I can. We can guarantee the sale of ten to fifteen million of these, and I just don't think there's that many people that are that geeky about it. Also, having the having the cell um, in it, not necessarily for phone calls, but having cellular so that you can stream from your iCam sixteen or whatever is is pretty advantageous. I don't think a lot of people would choose it, even if it was available. Mitchell? Uh, Scott, I don't think that uh, you're going to see a huge drop in price if they were to eliminate the phone part. I did uh, mention this yesterday when we were talking this. But uh, they could do, like, buy your iPhone and get the phone for free for a limited time only. Uh, Courtney? Well, I'll tell you, uh, the peer pressure of a status-seeking teen sells millions more iPhones than a budding young Steven Spielberg who wants to use it as a camera. I think uh, that uh, Apple has found the, the magic secret. They've, they've selling nailed it. tons of phones. Boy. That is it, you know. It's an amazing thing that, you know, we, we, we talked about it a couple times, but we've talked about it on a couple shows. 87% of kids under 18 uh, right now are on an iPhone. Like it's in the United States, in the United States. It, it, it definitely changes overseas. But yeah, if that's Bombay, the, they've all got the Android. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but And the uh, amount I, of money Apple keeps putting into the camera section astonishes me. In fact, my wife woke me up this morning and said there's a sunrise come and, you know, we grabbed a quick shot of it. But to have that good quality camera with all that automation in it that – handles exposure in very difficult circumstances like you're trying to shoot, you know, a sunrise. It's just astonishing. No wonder people are using them so much and love them so much and why they put so many engineers and so much effort into the camera sections. It's it's astonishing. 
looks like but, Oppenheimer set the atmosphere on fire again. <laughs> yeah, I know, doesn't it? It well, that that's not. It's more orange on on my iPad, which is more color accurate. I'm still trying to figure out how to get a better feed out of my older iPad Pro into the show. But it, regardless, it is a tough call for a camera to split focus that to split uh, exposure that much because. You probably can't see it in this picture, but the golf course on my iPad is actually noticeably green. The mid-tone detail uh, below in the mountains and the houses is solid, and then you're shooting into a sunrise with a lot of light, and it all worked together to make a satisfying picture automatically. Pretty, pretty impressive. Let's go on to the next question. Alan Cavato from Richmond, Virginia asks, how do you get the office hours Zoom stream into YouTube Live, and this is a QR code question. It is, Alex. So we're not streaming from Zoom. We can, um, but we don't. We don't stream from Zoom. Uh, we're using, uh, I believe it's an Osprey Talon. I believe it's but Osprey. Um, it looks a lot like if I, I have one. I have I have the uh, Amazon one around here somewhere. Anyway, um, it is. Uh, uh, it's a small box, about this big, um, and it's a, and they uh, and um, but it's this Osprey, and it it. Uh, takes so there's a huge amount of of hardware that um, that is basically doing all the cuts and the graphics and everything else, and it feeds that last little bit out to this little box that's that streams it to YouTube. So that's the that's how we get it into into YouTube. There you go. Next question from Paul Wallace in Hot Springs, Arkansas. On my Netgear Nighthawk device manager interface, there are two iPhones connected on the network map. One has the name of the device, and the other says unnamed dev. How do I get the unnamed dev to show up with a name like the other iPhone? Uh, Alex. Yeah, I'm assuming that you are, um, uh, I, I, I'm assuming that you're, um, that these are both your phones. This is not like some random other phone that's there. If it is, then you have to think about that. That's a problem. Um, but otherwise, what you want to do is go into your settings and then go to general and then at the very top, you'll see about. And when you click on about, the very first thing is your iPhone name. That is the name that's going to show up on the network. So, um, so if you uh, that should be that should be what um, how it identifies itself to the network. Um, so anyway, mine mine has my phone version because I've got a bunch of phones floating around, and that it's mine because I got a bunch of family phones floating around. And then then I know which one is which. Happy Thanksgiving, Paul, and you broke my brain when you said unnamed dev because it's not unnamed, it's dev. I'm, I'm totally confused. My brain almost locked up on that one. Let's go on to the next question. Graham Cardwell from Northern Ireland asks, Happy Thanksgiving, all. Looking at Black Friday action cam deals, both the Insta360, One RS 4K, not the twin with 360, and GoPro Hero 9 fit my budget. Which of these two would you buy and why? Alex. Uh, I would buy the um, the Insta360. Um, I think that a lot of their their stuff has been really really solid, and I just haven't had a great experience with GoPros since about five five or six. I can't remember which one. Where I just I bought the next one and the next one, and I just was like, I can't keep buying these. <laughs> the interface isn't getting any better. The camera's getting less stable. Uh, so so I would if if I was picking between those two, I'd probably and the Insta360 stuff is built really well. So there you go. Let's go to the next question. Another QR code coming in from Tim McMillan in Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, Tim says, I'm thankful for the Office Hours team for producing the best show on the Internet every day. Happy Thanksgiving. 
Happy Thanksgiving to you, Tim. Thank you for saying that. And I, I feel it, even as an insider who's been here since the beginning, I'm still gobsmacked by the community here and the number of talented people who are doing this. Alex? Yeah. You know, I think that what's amazing is, is that it is really a show that is really everyone's putting together. If you're watching this right now and you're asking questions through the either through the um, the QR code or you're asking them in Mukana, if you're we have people who are running the show, managing the show, we have, we put this show together as a team uh, every single day. So it's just, it's really an amazing experience. Thanks. Absolutely. Next question. From Burkhardt Friedrich from Easterberg, Germany. I want to get audio out only for my Play Out B version 2 in regards of quality. Shall I better, uh, would it be better to use the 3.5 millimeter jack of the uh, Raspberry Pi or an HDMI audio extractor like this? And he's got a link there to something called an audio extractor. Alex, do you have familiarity? I think you could probably get away with the 3.5 millimeter jack. Um, I haven't used that extractor. The only thing I would say is that, I mean, the best quality you're going to get out of it is HD. Take it out of the HDMI and have something that's going to de-embed the HDMI to a balanced audio output. And maybe this is it. I I haven't been able, I wasn't quite able to open it up there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I have an audio extractor that I use to uh, uh, take the output of my ATEM Mini and get it into my into my uh, Rodecaster Pro, uh, so I can go out with a couple of RCA jacks, which is a little bit better cable. They're still unbalanced, but they're at least they're not the coaxial three point five millimeter connector, and you do have a lot more control over it. I can control the volume a little better because uh, it has a uh, you know left and right control on the signal level. So. Um, that's what I do, and I like the extractor better than pulling it directly out. As Alex, analog. you want to get back in on this? Whoops. Yeah, and, and unless you're pulling it, unless you're getting a, uh, I would say that if you're if you're getting an unbalanced output, I, I think you could probably you're, you're probably in a very similar space with the box or the three point five millimeter. I don't know if it would buy you much. So let's go to the next question. Jason Robershaw from Sarasota, Florida, ask. Besides tuning in and participating in office hours, obviously, what other tips and tricks can you recommend for making working remotely less isolating? Courtney. Well, um, be on the panel and participate in a two-way conversation uh, because that makes you feel a little less isolated. Uh, Watching it is always uh, my favorite thing to do, but uh, participating is even better. So come on the panel. Alex? Yeah, or after hours. And we're going to be doing more projects as we go into next year. Um, You know, I think that I don't have a lot of ways. I don't have a lot of other places that I make it less isolating. (laughs) Like I'm not. And so, uh, so I don't, I don't know if I know how to make that, that better. Um, I don't find it that I think I'm so used to our community that I, I I don't interact with that many other ones. Um, And so uh, I have a couple online, a couple discord communities that I'm part of, but that's about it. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I, I think that, um, being more, you know, the, the best thing to do is to try to, uh, the more here, the more you jump into things like after hours or, or jump onto the panel, as Courtney said, what happens is it's not just that you get to see us, um, you know, your people get to know you, um, and that changes the state of how you, what, what the rest of office hours looks like when you're, when you're on a panel and you're providing, you know, answers and being part of that conversation, you're more well known within the entire community and it, and it definitely changes how people interact with you and more people will just say hi, you know, more people will reach out to you uh, to be part of that, uh, be part of that, what, whatever they're working on. So, 
Um, I would recommend if you feel like you have those those skills that you want to that you want to use there on the panel. Uh, I'd recommend thinking about it, and I know that you do a lot of great work there, so you're thinking hard about those those questions. Um, and uh, but yeah, we're going to be doing more kind of group uh, projects as we go into 2024. So stay tuned for that as well. Courtney, you want to do a follow up? Yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, communicate in chat through Mukana because that's a good way to uh, talk back and forth to the other people that are watching the show, so you feel more inclusive and you can have your individual opinions that may be contrary to ours. And post we we hope so. I I always mm-hmm. like it when somebody says no. I think you're wrong about that because it this it leads to discussion and discussion leads to knowledge. I also, I read something this morning when I woke up, somebody had done a really nice tribute to Jimmy Buffett, the late singer songwriter who really affected so many people and had such an unusual and amazing life. Um, And in one of his early songs, I remember he talked about the difference between, this is from the point of view of somebody sitting on stage doing the show, people who come to watch the show and people who come to put on the show. And if you can find it in your lifestyle to do even little adjacent things and get to know the people who put on the shows, um, they are ve- they're very good. Most of us, and I'm going to keep myself in that, are kind of very good at not getting bored. <laughs> we, we tend to have short attention spans. We tend to like a lot of stimulation. And we want a lot of incoming stuff. So we go seek out opportunities to learn. And I can't think of a better learning opportunity in the modern world than what Alex has created here in Office Hours. So whether it's here or something else, just don't be passive. Sit at home and watch the world go by. Sometimes stand up and, and do a little of it, and you'd be surprised at how rapidly your friend group and your life kind of, I think, gets more interesting. To each their own. Next question. Nicely said, Bill. Next question coming in from Paul Wallace at Hot Springs, Arkansas. What is the most robust tent around 16 by 32 feet for an outdoor production that lasts several weeks with heavy weather and high winds, lightning, hail, etc. Oh my gosh, Mitchell. What would lightning, you want to be inside hail, of? <laughs> etc. Paul, where the heck are you? Um I would be very careful about pitching a tent that uh with the public would be in where they have high winds. It just doesn't make sense. Maybe there's some specially uh ones made for the Arctic, but uh I would be very careful. Uh Alex yeah, I would definitely uh, be careful about these tents. Now, Uline makes uh, event tents. Can, you, what you're looking for is an event tent. Uh, this is going to have either water or other things that you're going to pour into it, uh, pour into the base at every pole. So every pole is based uh, either in or strung to a uh, um, to some kind of counterweight. That is, typically it's water. They just they come in empty and then you pour water into them and then it's heavy and it doesn't move anywhere, and that's going to be what you're looking for is something that does that. You can't use it. For what you're listing, you're not going to be able to use anything else. When you say high winds, you just got to be careful. There's a lot of bad things that can happen if people are intense with high winds. Um, you know, And so you just want to – the safety of that is something you want to think hard about. I, If it was me, and I've done a lot of these, I would rent it. Like I would not try to buy – because what I'm talking about, the kind of tent that I'm talking about that's going to withstand this is starts at about five grand and will go up to about ten grand and you can rent them for almost nothing. Like, you know, so you may – you know, a three-week rental might cost you uh, six or eight hundred dollars, you know, so uh, depending on where you are. So I, I would be much more tempted to rent it because then someone's going to come and they're going to pick it up and they're going to do all the work for you and everything else and it's all going to just be fine. You know, like, you know, and, and so um, – uh, but I – but even then – at high, I wouldn't worry as much about 
Uh, I mean, I don't know about lightning, but I, lightning could be a problem. I mean, you don't want people outside when it's when there's lightning in general. Um, you know, then there's a lot of metal in this thing, so it's going to be a big antenna. So if you see lightning, you should disperse. In my opinion, <laughs> you know, like that's not, like like you're you're, you're not the hills. Run away. Yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's I, I'm in danger. Um, anyway, so uh, so, so anyway, as someone who's who's been nearly next to a tree when it got hit, it's hard to picture how much power is in a lightning bolt until it hits a tree. I was in a car and we were maybe 15 feet from a tree. And fortunately, because you're in a car, you're, you're actually insulated because of the tires. And so the, um, so we got to watch the, the, the lightning bolt just, just tear a tree in half. Um, and all the bark came off of it as it got hit. And it was, I mean, it was so loud and so powerful, and you just it gave me an entirely different respect for lightning after seeing it close up without having it kill me. Um, I was able to you know tell the tale that wow, that's a lot of power so um so anyway, I would uh be careful of lightning um hail shouldn't be a problem in most cases uh even even the softball size that you get in Colorado probably won't go through the tent uh, uh, an event tent it's pretty thick. Um, high winds I would worry about. Um, it, it'll take good wind, but I don't know. Like once you get over, I don't know what you mean by high winds. Um, at 30 miles an hour, it should be fine. At anything higher than that, you don't want to be in a tent with wind over 30 miles an hour. If I was charged with doing this, one of the first things I'd do is try to find somebody who'd been around Cirque du Soleil because they bring these huge tent events around the country. And I would imagine, first of all, they probably spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more than that, designing something to have a public presence for two weeks on site. But one of the things I did notice is that most of the time their tents are constructed with really high poles. So there are a lot of really high and then a swoop down from that. And I realized looking at one when I went to see a Cirque du Soleil adventure, that's probably about water dispersion because the last thing you want, the thing that has always crushed pop-ups and things like that for me is when something gets loose and water pools in the top of the tent because the weight of that water grows so rapidly that it can literally crush the tent. So I think, yeah, I think I definitely talk to somebody who does this regularly and knows all those safety factors. Courtney? Oh, yeah. Here's the thing. If you take several of these and strap them together, these bouncy houses make uh, <laughs> great. Uh, and, it's and it's fun inflatable. For your crew. It's inflatable. <laughs> so when you crash to the ground, it, it cushions your fall after you get sucked up into the tornado. Watch the kids. <laughs> just watching the kids like they're, they're just tossing in the, they're tossing uh, the kids. Yeah. The resiliency of youth. God I just saw, <laughs> I just saw a video where someone's like, they're video, they're videotaping a storm, and then about half or maybe a quarter mile away, you just see a trampoline flying through the air, <laughs> just like rolling through the air, and they're like, "What is that?" They're like, "Oh no, you know." So anyway, ah. Uh. Let's go to the next. Oh, go ahead. By the way, one of my pastimes, I will say, as we're getting into the things that can go wrong, I do like to watch uh, Fail Army. It reminds me of all the ways things can go horribly wrong. (laughs) You know, like like it's just, and it's 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 a little bit of a it's it's important to if you haven't seen Fail Army, it's literally ten minutes a day of just 
bad things happening. Like, you know, and, and some of them are minor and some of them are, no one dies in them, I think. Oh, I think most of the time. But, um, but I think that most of the time, but, but I think that it's a, um, it is a, it, it, I always find it to be philosophically a good lesson. Like this could all go horribly wrong really quickly. And my, my tendencies towards wanting to be safe uh, are turned up a little bit and I think it's healthy. <laughs> so anyway, so I would, I would take a look at it. Um, but it's not for the faint at heart. There's a lot of, it's, it's amazing how bad things can go really quickly. Like, and it's just weird things. Like, you're just like, oh, this will be funny. And then the, the house, you know, the house, half of the house. Alex, down. we got to have a talk after the show, please. <laughs> okay, there you go. I love those YouTube videos of kind of like the Rube Goldberg of failure. Well, one little thing goes bad. The fireworks starts this little fire. And the next thing you know, the whole house is engulfed after 10 stages. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, next question. Vic Sinise from Lowell, Indiana. Amazon has a Sony ZV-1F for $398 Black Friday price, $100 savings. A 20-millimeter fixed lens, a one-inch sensor. I'm looking for an HDMI camera for streaming and 1080p. Your thoughts? Alex. Solid camera. Like, it's a good, it's a good camera. It's going to have good autofocus, which is going to make it a lot easier. The slightly larger... Uh, um, sensor is going to give you a little bit of not quite the same amount of bokeh that you see here, but a little bit of bokeh there that you can work with. So there are, you know, it's it's a good it's a good camera. If you could go a little higher or go used, you can get Sony's that are Super Thirty Five. You know, the sixty, I think the fifty. 6,200 or 6,900 or 6,600. I don't know. There's so many numbers, but um, but there are some, and, and up at the eight hundred dollar range, there's the the. Um, I have I have one laying here. Uh, the Z10, I think it's the E E Z, E10. E10. I can't keep ZV E10. Um, and I I'd love to talk to I'd love to interview someone at Sony about their naming conventions just to figure out what the thought process was there. But anyway, but the uh, the E10, the ZV E10 is I've I've used and it it, it works really well and it's a, it's a Super 35. The only bummer about that one is it doesn't let you load LUTs. So that that's the only thing that that uh, you give up there. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm oh, sorry. It's Bill's. It's Bill's show. I, I just, okay. I, just wanted, I was like, I was like, blah 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 blah. Yeah, go ahead. No go harm, ahead. no foul. I, I don't go to until Bill uh, tells me to go. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bill, am I up? Um, Mitch, I would please. be concerned about heating because those cameras, the lower end Sony cameras, do generate heat if you're going to use them as a webcam. And the A series definitely get uh, get hot. You need one with a fan in it. I don't think the ZV. One uh, F has a fan. I think the first thing you're going to hit with a fan would be the uh, uh, the, the FX30 or the FX3, um, and that's the thing you need to have. So you're you're going to save money, but you also may have something you can't leave on all the time. And I've been a little negligent in not getting this earlier, but do remember that we've got two full hours of Q&A today, which means that if you haven't put your questions in, if you have questions, uh, we will go as long as you want us to go up until the top of the second hour uh, after we finish two full hours. Uh, so if you have questions and you want to pop them in, it's a good day to do that. You can do it off the QR code little uh thing that we put up in the corner of the screen various times during the show. We can also, oh, there it is down there. Uh, we can also uh, have you just, Type in at office hours. What is it? What I, I can't see it on here. Let's see. Um, boy, I can't ask office hours. Global. Ask office hours. Global. Thank you, Alex. Um, and that'll take care of it. Let's go to the next question. From John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. Two years ago, office hours was a fire hose of info I couldn't keep up. Since then, I learned and tried so many new things with the help from here's the list: Preto, Mickey, Fenwick, Guy, Jeff, Courtney, Sabato, et al. Thanks for giving. 
And that's very nice of you to say, John. And, and thank you for all your questions over the years. We've read your name out a dozen, uh, dozens of times on the show. So you've been a big part of the success of helping this show continue every day, as has everybody who contributes questions every day on Office Hours. And we are appreciative of every one of you who interacts with the show. Let's move to the next. Oh, I'm sorry. Courtney wanted to get in on this. Courtney? I was just going to say uh, thanks for watching and thanks for uh, giving us questions. Because if you didn't watch or give us questions, hey, it'd be a pretty short show and we wouldn't need to show up anyway. <laughs> That's right. Alex? Yeah, to go back to what we talked about, it, it really is the, the one show where everybody's involved <laughs> or everybody can be involved. Uh, it's not everyone. You know, You know. the funny thing is, is that I, I look at the stats every day and, um, and the, uh, there's about 250 to... 500 people total that watch every day live that's live and then and then more people watch later um there's uh you know we, we range anywhere from about a, about 90 to about 150 concurrent but the total number of people that came in at some point in time during the show uh, runs between about 250 to 500 and it's kind of an amazing thing and if you're watching that and you're watching live and you haven't asked questions ask officehours.global that's all i gotta say all right there you go moving on to the next one and the next one is from Douglas Carmichael. Would a 64-gigabyte M3 Mac be sufficient for experimenting with locally run LLMs, or would I need more RAM? Ah, here's a John Preto question, John. Are you are you ready for a new acronym now? Small language models, which have been released into the wild now. Microsoft is at Ignite last week, touted some small language models. So there's a bunch of activity going in on on device for smaller smaller models running on device and so 64 meg on, a, on an m3 max is fine to run some of the stuff that's happening right now there's tons of stuff on hugging face that you can run right now we re, i run llama on my local machine i have 64 gigs of memory on it, it runs fine it's so slow after you get used to you know gpt4 everything else is slow by comparison but uh small language models that's the latest acronym for the week Interesting, John. Are they are they a subset of a large one? In other words, uh, widely diverse across the topics, or is a small one like let's say we're in the chemistry realm? It just so, focuses on chemistry. So the architecture is a, is like a hybrid model where you can do some of the processing locally and then then the, run all the hard um, all, all the hard compute, all the big compute in the cloud. So that's the oh, architecture okay. that we're sense. seeing. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you, um, Courtney. Yeah, and I was wondering, uh, John, do you need any neural cores, neural networking cores like you would have in a GTX, uh, you know, um, or an RTX uh, NVIDIA board to to process those faster? Or will just a stock Mac be uh, significant enough to do it? It's definitely going to be faster if you have neural cores. I, I'm on an old Intel on my iMac Pro. I have no neural cores on this, and they run fine. They run slow, but they still run. So it's just a matter of speed and efficiency. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Next question. John Nichols in Concord, California. I've got two Veripoles in my home studio. I'd like to run a crossbar between them and hang lights off that crossbar. The lights aren't heavy. I don't have floor space for two C-stands. Any out-of-the-box crossbars for Veripole, or is this a do-it-yourself? Do uh, let's go with John, um, John Preto. Yes, John Preto. So, John, you just articulated exactly my setup. I do exactly this. I have a stand-up desk against the wall over here, and then I have I have the two bear poles behind the desk, and then I have a piece of truss, a little four-inch piece of truss in between the two bear poles with 
with big giant uh, what are the what are the big clamps called? Are the magic super clamps. clamps. Super. Me for clamps. Um, well, connected. Are using super? Are using super arms or super or the Manfrotto giant clamps to hold the truss to the auto yeah. pulls? And, and I could put a hundred pounds on that easy, and it and it works like a champ, and it looks good because it's aluminum, like you'd see in a studio, and you can light it up with lights, and it looks really cool. So that's exactly what I do. Uh, let's go to Mitchell Hill. Uh, John, here's another way you do it. I did it this way using just one. Is I set it up behind me. Um, to go horizontally on the ceiling. And the trick is if you're going to push it against the wall, make sure you put a uh, piece of wood there so you don't punch a hole in the wall. But I've got quite a few lights hung on that. As you can see, one pole could do it all. And I'm going to try to do the same thing. Let's see if I can punch up the shot successfully. Oh, great. It's turned on its side. Well, that's not good. But that's what I get for trying to use my phone for this. Um, if you can see up there the goalpost arrangement, I've got cross beams going across the ceiling. I've got uh, goalposts down, and then everything is usually hung with Mafer clamps or some other things. There's a couple of different particular things that I found that have been good pieces of hardware. Um, Manfrotto in their super in their uh, auto pole system has things that will attach inside one of the crossbeam poles and kind of expands. It's a little bit like the Bogan Manfrotto um, backdrop holders, and I find those very useful because they provide a way to turn a right angle easily. So I got a bunch of those to go with my uh, Manfrotto super, uh, the, the, the auto poles and the super clamps, and they've been very helpful. So, But there's a lot of stuff out there. So do auto pole accessory search. You'll find a lot of things to make this easier. Let's go to the next question. From Samuel Nordovic in Norway, in your opinion, who makes the best sounding mic preamps on the market? And in what products do these appear? And what are your follow-up semi-affordable ones? Let's go to Mitchell Hill. Um, it's interesting because preamps can also mean that from specs, they may sound great uh, and have excellent specs. But some preamps have their own character and sound, and uh, that makes them very sought after. In my case, uh, I'm a big fan of Neve, and I have a Neve 8801 behind me. Uh, it has its own character, its own kind of a sound. Um, if you're going to go into something a little more exotic, uh, an Avalon Mike Pre will work really well. And if you want an everyday, good price, semi-affordable, uh, sound devices, mix priests are a great source to go to. Alex? Yeah, I mostly look for quiet. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of folks that want something. If you're if you're getting a Neve or you're getting some other things, they're looking for warmth. Or they're looking for a, a certain you know kind of analog uh, processing there. But what I want is as quiet as possible. I'll do all those things later. <laughs> so so I don't. I just want to be able to get the, the the thing. And so for me, again, the the some of the best preamps are the sound devices one uh, preamps. But there's you know a lot of very high quality mixers that are going to have those. But it is something that you start to pay attention to. And especially if you start to listen for self-noise, um, you'll start to become more sensitive to it. Courtney? I have some sound sound devices, 744Ts, and they have great preamps in them. I also like the Nagra XOYO200s, which were uh, great preamps. They're transformer-coupled, but they uh, didn't do 48-volt phantom. They did have a later ones that do 48-volt phantom, but the Nagra preamps were really great and really low noise and very low current. You could run them all day long for a little bit of current. Well, let's go to the next question. 
John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I have been overly happy with my Sure MV7, looking for something a little smaller around the same price range. Side address is acceptable. Primary use is for Zoom and Teams meetings. Any suggestions? Alex. Well, I copied Courtney, uh, and I'm using the uh, Stellar X2. Uh, it is a side address. You can see it right here. Right here. This is where it is, right there. And um, I love it. I mean, I, I, you know, it's for 200 bucks. I think it's a great, it's a great mic. It, uh, we tested it head to head with a, uh, the Neumann TLM 102, which is a step below what Bill and Chris have. And, um, people liked it better, like, like the stellar sound for at least my voice. So, um, I think it picks up a lot more of the detail in the voice than the MV7. We sent, now I will say, I send the MV7 out to people to be on our podcast. And the reason I do that is because it has a lot of off axis rejection. It's easy to set up. Um, and it's just hard to be do it badly. Um, there is a lot of ways to do this one badly. So you do have to think about your room and the and, and how busy your room is because if you uh, – I have a bunch of sound blankets around me. If those aren't up, this, this mic is not usable um, because of the reflections. Mitchell. If you don't like the MV7, you're probably not going to like my suggestion of the SM7. Uh, the SM7B – are quite available nowadays because of the uh, 7db, which is uh, being sold. People are trying to get rid of their old ones. Um, it, it's a it's a it's a tricky question because it's really subjective. It's not quantitative, so you have to listen to a bunch of mics to be able to decide which ones you like. And yeah, there's a lot of people here uh, using the Stellars and they work great. Uh, but sometimes appearance isn't quite what it appears to be. For example, Alex just bought a U87 for twenty bucks. And, we decided uh, it wasn't worth it. I don't it. know how he did it, but he did it. <laughs> it's U87-ish. Yeah, yeah uh, not, it's a mic. It's got a, it, it, it has an outer <laughs> shell that looks like a U87. <laughs> it's a stunt mic now. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> anyway, Courtney, your thoughts? Well, I was just uh, trying to deal with, I was looking myself for a portable mic that I could travel with. And so I bought yesterday one of these. I haven't, uh, I won't get it till Christmas because this is my Christmas present. Is this uh, in uh, Rode NT USB mini versatile studio quality condenser microphone uh, that's a hundred bucks. Um, it has, it's a USB interface. It's small, has a little travel package that it comes with a little case, I think. Uh, it's that you can see what kind of size it is there. Um, so I'll try it out and see how good it is because I just, you know, don't want to pack up the Stellar and put it on an airplane and then deal with having to drag along a mixer or an interface for it because, you know, I need 48-volt Phantom, et cetera, et cetera. So I figured, you know, if I'm just traveling with a laptop and I want a portable microphone, I'm going to give that uh, give that road a shot. I think you had one, Alex. How did you like it? Did you use that one? Don't like it. <laughs> so, so, you can, so there you go. I can, should have asked me. I was just thinking, like, you should have asked me. I, I, I thought about I it. Like and it. I was going to ask you. We've had shows. We've had we had, had a client that wanted it for all of their folks. They just decided that's the price point they wanted to pay, and that's the one they want. And they ordered it without really talking to us, so we got to use it. I mean, that's not bad. Like it's not like it's not. It's well, like problem, I say, it's, it's only when I'm traveling, and it, there's a, it might be better than a. I have an old uh, pile, uh, mm -hmm. you know, headset mic. It's going to be better than the pile, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. I it's, figured it would be better than that. Um, you know, the uh, uh, I take out, you know, I take a DPA with me, <laughs> the DPA, you know, and, 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 and then put the mix pre in. I find that the mix pre with noise assist is way more important when I'm on the road than at home because hotels, you know, the, the, with the, the fans that you can't turn off and everything else. And so, yeah. But mine all fits into a little, 
everything on in mind fits into a fifteen ten case. It's probably more than you want to take, but it all but it's light. That's the lights. The I want the something stand. I can put in my in my laptop case. Oh, pshaw, pshaw. <laughs> <laughs> and it might work perfectly. One of the things weird that I've noticed, I've been doing voice work for 40, 50 years, is that I work differently with different microphones. And particularly, it takes me a couple of months to get used to a microphone. Uh, when I first bought my Neumann TLM 103, it sounded too thin for me for a while. But after that, I thought, no, it's now sounding pretty good. I'm not sure the mic didn't change. I think what changed was me. Uh, having a loop where you're hearing how you're performing into a microphone and adapting your performance to the mic's strengths and weaknesses is a real thing I've found. And when I started doing the audiobooks, it took me two books to get used to how I needed to perform for that microphone in that setting. And when I go into the voice booth, because somebody's doing work on something like that, I find I address, I put the mic at a different distance and I address it differently and I perform differently. So it's really interesting. Everybody's voice is different. Everybody's recording situation is different. And the mics have character, which is a real thing. So it's a matter of getting used to how to work with this mic in this circumstance. At least that's what I've found across my career. I've used a hundred different mics. I used to go into studios all the time to do voice work. Whatever mic they hung in front of you is the one you used. They all got the job done. But the engineers understood what that mic's characters were. And in EQ and everything else, they would address some of the shortcomings of the mic itself electronically. And the performances all got paid for and worked well. Mitchell, you have some other thoughts? I was just going to say, when you walk into a studio to do voiceover and you have nothing to do with that studio, I bet nine times out of ten, there's a U87s hanging there or maybe a 414. I didn't find that. I found at, at AKG, there, there were certain microphones that were popular at certain times. For a while, two of the three main studios I did work for hung um, AKG uh, 414BULSs uh, or TL2s, that which was a transformerless model. When I first started my first studio gig, I bought the mic from them. It's up on the shelf up there. It's a Shure SM5B Fatboy. It's got the big foam thing around that. And I used that for probably the first hundred voiceovers. And I didn't use it. The engineer in the studio stuck that up and said, stand here and talk into it and do the spot. And, you know, you sank or swim not on the perfect quality of the recording. That was the engineer's job. You sunk or swim based on whether you could get the copy done right. But uh, literally, I, got, I was on shotguns. I was on large diaphragm condensers. Uh, I did a whole bunch of TV stuff at a TV station, and they literally put an SM57 on a stand in the tape room for me. And I think I did 20 episodes of that TV show that way. So, so I, I guess what John is uh, thinking about, well, John, I'll just say it to you, is that all these mics have different character. And there's a multitude of different choices that you have out there. you got to use your own ears to decide. Yeah, use your ears and live with them a little. That's the other thing I'm trying to say is that don't think if you turn it on and you sit in front of it and you do a recording and say, yeah, I'm not sure if it's really right. It may not be right. You may be absolutely correct, but it may be your experience comes like mine with the 103. I learned to work it correctly, and I use it for all my audiobooks now. Alex? And if you're not sure, I very carefully when I buy stuff off of Amazon – I take as little out as I need to. I try to make sure I'm very careful with it, and I test it. <laughs> and if I like it, I keep a lot of it. I keep enough of it that Amazon doesn't complain about the fact that some of the stuff I just go, well, this isn't going to work, and I send it back. But I, the key is to keep all the paperwork and all the other stuff. You just very, I've, I've gotten very good at having a shelf that has things that haven't 
the return time hasn't expired. Um, like I had my my new, um, I made a mistake with my Steetech 8, 8 KVM. I needed 8 instead of 4. And I forgot about it. I bought it and I was like, oh, it makes a really loud beep. And uh, and then I, I found out that it expired like a week ago. I was going to send it send it back, and um, so then I had to do surgery I, last night. My son and I we opened it up Ooh. and just tore the tore the speaker up. <laughs> I guess like, now it's much quieter. <laughs> Nothing a pair of wire cutters won't fix. <laughs> yeah, we removed the tongue. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> all right, uh, fun discussion. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Burkhardt Friedrich in Eastenburg, uh, Germany, looking for recommendations for a digital mixer. For a venue, we needed automated faders, minimum six in, six out, that can be controlled over the network. Alex? Yeah, the, um, I mean, the one that, uh, the, the automatic one that most people will lean into is something like an X32. Uh, and if you have an X32 rack with a, with a X-Touch, uh, you can put that X-Touch anywhere and you've got like a little piece of hardware that just jumps on the network. You know, you can t- tie it in over Ethernet to, to the, um, I don't know if you can do it over the network. I can. I'm sure you can. <laughs> just haven't done it. Um, anyway, uh, but that's the, um, so the X32 rack is probably the thing that a lot of people will lean into for that. An XR18 is another one that Behringer makes that's there. Um, I'm not really that happy with less than $7,000 things other than the XR18. Um, I haven't really found anything I liked um, very much. There's also the DM3, if you want to go a little up, that's the Yamaha. So it's a great form factor. Um, it'll definitely have the channels that you're looking for. And all of those are things that you can log into with a uh, with a you know, with an app. Um, the nice thing about like the, even the XR18, you can walk around with an iPad. You can always see people using them. Uh, they're walking around with an iPad, um, adjusting things while they're in the room to to get it to where they like it, um, and so those are those are those are the, the probably the ones that I would look at: the XR18, the X32, and the Q or the DM3. Um, it's kind of at the top of that end for that number of channels. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, asks: I have a QCam Ego stereo camera. And in anticipation of spatial video in iOS 17.2, watched VR 180 all horrible, too close cross-eyed vids. How about some guidelines? Alex? Um, you watch the... Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I, haven't, I haven't used the uh, QCam. Uh, I, you know, what I would do right now is that the iPhone 15 is now, you know, I, I would... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether you are... Uh, with 17, you can, of course, get the beta, <laughs> you know, so I have the beta. Problem is, is a lot of the tools aren't there to really do a lot of work with it yet or to, there's nowhere to watch it. So, um, and, and there's no way to separate those things out at the moment. Um, the big thing is, is that you've got a couple problems with, I mean, a, a couple challenges. Um, one is that the, the, if the, if the interaxial distance gets wider than the, than your interocular distance, you're going to feel like your head's being stretched. Um, also, the other thing you have to worry about is convergence. Most of these cameras don't have any convergence. They're just looking straight ahead. That has a kind of an odd feeling to it that you have to get used to because convergence makes a difference. It's where the lens is. So when we work with higher end systems, we're literally tilting the lens into what we're focusing on. And I'll be very curious to see how Apple kind of handles that. Um, because the interaxial distance is so small on the on the iPhone, I don't think that's going to be that big of a deal. You, you're only going to get... I believe you're only going to get real th- a feel of 3D um, in five to ten feet, you know, from the camera. Everything else will kind of flatten out because the interaxial distance is so small. Um, but but you'll get some, and it'll feel cool when it works. That's why when they talked about like a reviewer was like, 
I, they were making sushi right in front of me and I could see it. It had dimension. It's because they were right in front of you. <laughs> so, so that's, that's why that worked. And so, uh, so I don't, I don't know for sure, but the, the, what I will say is the most important part of shooting 3d is to shoot a lot of it. Um, I've shot thousands of hours of three of 3d footage and it, it's just really hard. You'll get a sense, like I can look at something and tell you what's going to look good and what's not going to look good in 3d. Um, and most of the time we haven't been able to do that. Like people don't give us the access that we need to do that effectively. So, um, uh, so we, you know, we, get, we get put in a bad place, but when we get to, when we, when we're allowed to be put into the right place and we're able to design it, um, the, uh, we've, we've had a couple where they, where the, the team that we worked on gave us exactly what we asked for and the results are stunning, but it's really building up a space in front of you with a 180, you're not moving. So you don't put it on a moving camera cause that'll make everybody really sick. Um, the second thing is, is that really all of your actionable content is less than 15 feet away. If it's more than 15 feet away, it's not going to matter. It's just a 180. You, just do, you can just do mono at that point. Um, and, and also because of the resolution for most of these, you don't, you want, you don't want to get too far away because it just looks soft. So those are the kind of things you want to think about. And then you want to think about composing in 3D. So when you think about it, having things in front, but not too cut off. When things are, if you have a, if you have a, chair that's in front of you that a large portion of it's cut off it kind of creates this phantomness that is your mind doesn't know what to do with so things you can have things coming in out of the out of the scene but large chunks of things that are then going off the off the screen um sometimes just don't feel as comfortable if you leave them there so those are the kind of things but the best thing to do is do a lot of it um and this little cue cam uh uh you, you, and you got it and you're getting, I don't know why you have cross-eyed videos though, unless they're, unless somehow you're swapping the eyes, that would definitely make you feel cross-eyed <laughs> if, if the eyes were somehow swapped. So make sure that the, the eyes are, are correct there as well. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana. Who could be trusted with yesterday's media assets? And there's a link I to the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah, I find that real interesting. That that particular link says that they're talking about Ringo Starr, the Beatles, now and then the John Lennon performance, and we are seeing so much uh, with AI in terms of being able to bring back historical content and use it in new pieces of content. And I'm just still amazed and and pretty impressed with what Miss Swift is doing in terms of. Uh, she didn't like the fact that somebody else owned all those masters and stuff like that. So she said, the heck with it. I'm just going to redo them all. And so intellectual property is going to be a coming difficult challenge in this new world of derivative works. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it is a, uh, I don't think that they, I don't think that they did anything to his voice. I mean, other than clean it. Like, I think that that would be, I, I don't, I think that they would have been too purist given the Beatles were actually involved in it. I think it's probably un, unlikely. I think that what they probably did, they might have used AI tools to clean it, to separate it from other things. But I don't. I doubt that they changed the voice because uh, I don't think they would need to. I don't think it would it would turn out very well. So we're not yeah, quite there Cor yet. Courtney, yeah, with spectral sound, they can kind of clean up. Uh, they use that those tools these days to uh, isolate the sound of the piano and remove it and leave mostly uh, mostly Lennon's voice and fill it back in with. Uh, a similar sounding tone and timbre uh, if there's anything that got pulled out of a specific frequency and that made his voice sound funny. Uh, I think in order to to guarantee that your assets will be around and uh, 
properly uh, attributed to you in a hundred years is you need to develop the freeze-dried lawyer, intellectual property lawyer. <laughs> you can just put him in a can, put him in a salt mine somewhere, thaw him out 200 years from now, and he will look after all your intellectual property. Is somebody right now tapping into the databases to uh, get that URL, freeze-dried lawyer, because I think it's got some value. Alex? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what the next generation uh, does with this and whether they care. You know, I think that one of the things that is um, that I find fascinating about TikTok, for instance, is that TikTok is very derivative. That is the culture. They put up audio hoping that you're going to do something else with their audio, with their video, with their content. And and so I wonder whether the, the next generation is going to really care about IP in the way that we do. Um, because I, I really feel like, you know, shorts is pretty good, but I'm not, I don't get caught up in watching lots of shorts on YouTube. And I realize that part of it is, is there's a, uh, there's a shared experience, like you see how someone takes um, a, a an audio clip and does their own version of that clip uh, for how it relates to them with their own experience. And I think that that is the that's part of the entertainment, you know. And I think that this uh, collaborative, these collaborative platforms. I don't think TikTok's going to be the only one. And I and I think that that is um, uh, it's kind of the next generation of memes you know, is that the memes are everyone's part of it. You know, there, there's a meme, like there was one for the unbearable, like, bearable weight of greatness or whatever that movie lightness. was. Lightness. Lightness of being. Of, of, no, no, not being, of greatness. There was, this was oh. the Nick, Nick oh, Cage the, the one. Oh, the sports <laughs> the Nick Cage <laughs> yeah. one, yeah. And there's a shot where he's in the car and uh, uh, there's a song and he's in the car and there's a, and he, and he's uh and he's with um, the other guy, and they're they're both like looking at each other, kind of one smiling, and the other one looks concerned. And and uh, there were like a quarter million versions of that that came out on TikTok. That took that movie, took like ten seconds of that clip, and literally the reason I went to watch the movie was because the clip was so funny <laughs> how people used it. Um, so I think that it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how we do this as far as uh, you know. Who can be trusted? I think if the Beatles can't be trusted to take someone that was deceased from their own uh, band and do whatever they're going to do, I think that nobody can be. Like, like that's about as as far as it goes. I'm sure that Yoko Ono probably is getting a check and she probably heard it and she's probably happy with it. So I don't think that it's I, I don't think it's that that far off. What fascinates me in this era is what is it that makes a singer a singer? And I'm thinking of it in this context. Um, John Lennon had all sorts of things that were part of his singing style. So do most other th singers. I kind of learned this. I went to school on Frank Sinatra for a while, and I was listening to a song of his, an old one called Witchcraft. And I was just fascinated how he never really uh, starts a phrase on the beat. He would either anticipate it or lag it. And that was part of jazz. That's part of his jazz training coming up as a musician. So if you took John Lennon's aspects that are encoded in AI and you assigned say Garth Brooks's voice to it. And they do that what already. Would it, what they're would it already, sound I mean, like? They're doing yeah. it. I mean, they're doing those already. I mean, they're, and, and they're pretty funny. Like I have to say that they're, I know people are <gasps> grabbing their pearls, but, but they're, <laughs> but, but they are, they're pretty funny. Like yeah. they have people singing Frank Sinatra and people singing. now, like, am I going to listen to that? Like on Spotify? No, but no. as a 15 <laughs> seconds or 20 seconds of, of watching a funny video, it's pretty darn enjoyable. <laughs> find Johnny Cash singing Barbie girl. It's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, I bet. So for me, I, though, it's the process of what is it that makes that that person's original style unique? How much of it is is phrasing? It's, is it tempo? Is oh, it pitch? It's, 
it's all of it. Is, I mean, you it's know, all the of person, it. Yeah. You know, like for some reason I've gotten, um, uh, I, I can't do it yet, but I've, I've, <laughs> I've, um, uh, oh, I can't think of, anyway, I, I, I love figuring out how, when people, um, you know, I, I, I find it interesting that looking at how someone imper- impersonates somebody, what do they grab onto? You know, because when an impersonator is impersonating someone, they're not impersonating them. They have grabbed onto certain values of what they do and accentuated exactly. them, exactly. you know, and to, to make that work. So looking at people impersonating someone, um, I find to be uh, hilarious. And, and, and the, one of the cheats that I had when I was due to a lot of voice acting is someone would say, I want you to sound like somebody. I didn't look for the person. I looked for the person, people impersonating him. And, and then I just impersonate them. <laughs> a, lot, a lot faster. <laughs> like I can do that in hours. Like not, you know, so, cause you're just looking at, oh, I see what they did there. And, and then yeah, you, they and emphasize you the unique qualities rather than everything. Yeah. And, and there's some guys on, on, again, on TikTok and on YouTube that will tell you how they're doing it. And they, and they say, you know, this is how you get to this voice. And it's really, it's really fun to watch. And because they'll say, this is the, these are the, these are the things that makes this voice recognizable as this person are these things that they do. Anyway, we, we, we ran, we ran through. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wasn't paying as close attention as I should have. So welcome to the second hour. Great to have (laughs) you here. We're going to continue our Q and A all this week. As a matter of fact, we are continuing on Q and A. Uh, so let's dive into our next question. And diving away, we are with a QR question coming in from Mark Sanderson in Chesterfield, UK. I have never used a camera with SDI output before. Amazon has cheap BNC cables designed primarily for security cameras. Will these work with a 1080p PTZ camera with an SDI output? Alex, help us out. Yeah, I mean, if it's 75 ohms, it's probably going to work. It really depends on how far you're going. So where the cables matter... Under six feet, everything's going to work. Um, as you start going to 50 feet, 75 feet, 100 feet, the quality of the, camp, the of the cable starts to matter. Like, for instance, we can even get the impedance wrong at six feet. We've had things where I opened it up and I was like, this is an antenna cable. It's at 50 ohms instead of 75. So the SDI is at 75 ohms and your, in your antennas for your audio is at 50 ohms. And you can use the wrong one, uh, at, you know, up to 10 feet or, or something like that. And they'll both work. Um, for 1080p, uh, maybe not for 4K. Um, but I would rec- recommend generally getting cables that are um, that are rated for 3G uh, or 6G um, SDI. Uh, the best, the, the least expensive way to do this, is if if you're willing to take a little, spend a little time on it, is to buy. I, I buy my SDI by the thousand, so by a thousand feet at a time. And then I cut it and, and terminate it myself. <laughs> you know, so that's a that is a that's the cheapest way to do it. It'll cost you about um, eh, I think it costs about thirty cents a foot. You know, so it's that that gives you a sense of. And then the connectors, and I buy really nice connectors, so that's a little more expensive. It might cost a buck fifty, buck fifty for both ends. Yeah, uh, Courtney. Yeah, there used to be a big problem with this because you know some of you young whippersnappers may not realize it, but networking used to be done over coaxial cable at 50 ohms, and a lot of that cable is still out there uh, for doing uh, network 
you know, 10 megabit uh, type networking. And they have 50 ohm connectors on them and they're 50 ohm cable. But like Alex says, you probably want to jump up from an RG59 if you're going any length over 100 feet or so. Amazon's got a bunch of, and it's Barbie pink, uh, these cables that are, are 3G, 6G. They're rated for SDI and they're RG6. So it's the fatter cable. It's a little less flexible, uh, but they make it in a variety of different lengths. And it's fairly reasonably priced. Uh, so that might be a better way. I don't know how cheap you're getting those uh, those old uh, security camera cables, but I'd be careful because they're probably RG59 and they're not really well made. So anything longer than about 50 feet may be a problem sending uh, SDI 1080p. And if ordering Barbie pink bothers you, just rebranded as Salmon. Mitchell? Yeah, you got to be careful. Uh, there are two types of BNCs uh, other than the size difference, the 50 and the 75 ohm. Uh, they're for different uses completely. Uh, best to buy something that's branded as SDI capable, as uh, has been said here previously. And in some cases, the 50 ohm cable won't fit on a 75 ohm spigot, depending on which uh, version of uh, cable you have. Alex? Yeah, I have to admit, I'm kind of amazed at how cheap SDI has gotten on Amazon. I mean, even stuff that says SDI is rated for 3G, 6G, so on and so forth. I mean, at 150 feet at $50, I can't even, I don't know if I can make the cable that cheaply. Um, so that, so it really has, um, you know, dropped off in price. Uh, I would, um, but yeah, I, I would think about, um, uh, it's not just plugging in and seeing if it works. You're going to want to plug it in, see if it works, move the cable around, and you're looking for snow, little bits of things that are appearing and disappearing because SDI won't, doesn't necessarily just turn off it will just degrade the signal as it goes through. So you have to be very kind of careful of that. Let's go to the next question. Nick Sinise in Lowell, Indiana. Sure, F, uh, MV7X on sale for $161. I only need XLR. How does it compare? Mitchell? Well, I think it compares nicely because that is the XLR only version. Uh, the USB version uh, is the MV7. Uh, the X specifies that it's only XLR. So um, just remember with an XLR output, you need some kind of a interface to get into your computer. Alex? Yeah, it is uh, uh, at $161. It's probably one of the best mics you can get at that price. Um, so uh, it is It is the MV7. It's going to have the off-axis rejection. Uh, it just doesn't have the USB. And the USB is not great. We're thinking about converting all of our MV7s and adding this sure uh, converter to them because the um, micro is so bad uh, in that if you're using it and you're setting and forgetting it's fine if you're sending it out to people and they're using it all the time it gets loose um, and so that's been the problem we've had next question from andre dole in berlin alex watching the stop motion snips today i repeatedly had the desire to see more details but as you're using a black magic capture device the blacks are crushed i bet you have some other device laying around why not use it for better blacks Alex. Yeah, so here's the problem. <laughs> I have thought of that. Uh, it's, uh, it, has, it has crossed my mind. Uh, the problem is that I, I bought an SDI version, but I just never made the, the switch to SDI for, the, for the, um, uh, the, mini, the Mini Extreme. The, the challenge that I got myself into was that the, I have two outputs. I have two HDMI outputs without the USB output. And one HDMI um, is uh, going to, is my multi-view, and I need that. Um, in front of me, so I that's there. The other one is going to my my Wacom tablet, 
And so my Wacom tablet, and if I put it through a splitter, I try to put it through a splitter, I can feel it. And it bothers me because the my now my my video is just a little behind my pen. Like it's super subtle, but I can just feel this this lag in it that that I don't like. And so I did try it that way because that's exactly what I was gonna do, because that is the program, right? That's the program going out. Um, uh, what I'm going to do to fix this right now, and I started playing with this is, um, uh, and I had this set up on my last one. It wasn't a problem before. And then when I, when I flipped my room, I lost it and I just have to spend the time to do it. The key is for me to set that monitor output to match the blacks on the, that, the, that are being generated by the ATEM. So like when I had the ZV1, uh, the Z1, which I've taken, or e, EV1, I can't Easy V1, ZB whatever it is. E10. No, no, the one, not the 10. Oh, the one. The, the higher end one. Predecessor. Um, it will let me do LUTs. And so what I started doing is adjusting for the blacks. It's, I'm a little bit more punchy today because I switched back to the FX30. Um, and the, because uh, I'm tired of the, the Z1 stopping. <laughs> so anyway, so um, not that I'm bitter. Uh, so the, um, the, uh, but what I'm going to, what I'm going to do is what I did with the, the computers before, which is that I'm going to take my, um, my color corrector and put it on an output that is coming, it's coming from my computer into the switcher and then full screen onto a monitor. And then I'm going to put my color correction, my, my spider onto it and let the spider fix it so that that output, what's being generated is correcting for the whole color pipeline. Uh, and I had that done before and it worked perfectly and I just haven't you know, until you brought it up, I was like, oh, that's probably a good time. I'm about to tear this, but I didn't tear it apart yesterday. Yesterday I got busy, but today I'm tearing my system apart and putting it all back together because it it goes nice and clean and then it becomes slowly a hive as I change things. and <laughs> It's at maximum hive now. So it, it, that means it's time. And usually I wait for some holiday weekend to tear it apart. So anyway, um, so I'm going to tear, tear all the, I'm building the pipe, I'm building my diagram for it right now like it's half done like i was like because i have a i'll have a lot of things here so i got to figure out the diagram and then i got to build the edids and then i have to do all, there's a whole bunch of things that happen on my end anyway there you go for the people who are obsessed with tents here you go mitch yeah. next question john fisher oklahoma city oklahoma another question for the tent talk have you ever seen an event tent open in the middle to allow a large tree trunk to pass through and would this be a custom fab job uh, Alex, take us back into tent world. I have seen it. I've seen it quite a few times, actually. People love building tents around trees for some reason, um, but they, it's always custom. It's, there's, no, there's no tent that does that that I know of, uh, and usually they're using truss. So there's a, they'll build a truss network on it, and then they'll pull it. And for the ones that I've worked on, those, the panels that were used were custom built for that truss um, you know, to, to be put over it. Maybe some event company has that the special tree version of their tent but the ones that i've seen done um have been and it looks really cool <laughs> i will admit when you go inside what they did is they built all the tables around the trunk it's a pretty big trunk built all the tables around the trunk and there were a couple little things there and they, they had a big truss and you could kind of they left it a little bit open so that you could look up and see this huge tree and um i i thought it was an, an amazing activation uh for that um but it but it's um and feels very cool uh um but but i uh, i don't know they built that i mean it was a design there were meetings there were there were budgets all those things 
It wasn't just a sales guy going, do you want any tree portals in my, this one? My guess is the cost of that was probably in the 10 to 20 grand, you know, to have probably, just for that 10. Yeah. But, it, but it, the, the, the activation was probably, uh, you know, $8 million activation. So it wasn't it, like it, it, it was a small detail in a, in a very large project. Courtney? Yeah, I would say they would have to be custom because, you know, every tree is different. So, you know, the diameter of the tree has to be taken into account. If you're using it, you know, it kind of uh, wrecks the uh, waterproof uh, uh, state of the tent. So water is going to leak down through the hole that the trunk is passing through. Also, if you've got low branches on the tree, you know, how do you deal with those? If the tent is going to be above them or below them. Uh, I think it's going to have to all be a custom deal. And it's probably not a good idea because in a windstorm or a lightning storm, you know, lightning's going to hit that tree and it's got a nice big grounding plane on it now uh, for the lightning to run into. And it's going to, the branches are going to crack off and fall through the ceiling of the roof. So I foresee a problem. It's an apocalyptic idea. Let's go, Mitchell. Yeah. Is that tree trunk in motion? Has anybody asked that part of the question? <laughs> Because if it's in motion, it's going to be a problem. And as uh, Courtney just said, uh, lightning likes trees. Why would you want to be under one? Because it's gorgeous sometimes. So, you know, that, that, that in my experience, art directors, you find somebody who's, oh, my gosh, we've got a tree. Let's use it. So anyway, next question. Terry McAdams from Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, the person asking about the iPhone with the name unnamed device should look in settings, Wi-Fi, and the touch that little I in the circle next to your active SSD. You should see the private Wi-Fi address and turn off the switch. Ah, the SSID may be your portal to fixing that. Good. Uh, Alex? You can. You, if you really want to see that, that phone, you, you can do that. But, of course... We turn that on for a reason <laughs> so that we can jump onto other people's SSIDs and it's not identifying our phone directly. So there, there's a reason that that privacy is there. Uh, if I knew that, if I was sure that that was the phone and that's what it did, um, I'd probably leave it that way and just know that that's my, my phone and I wouldn't turn that off in general. Next question. Next one in is a QR code question coming in from Chris Widener in Indianapolis, Indiana. So my case is falling apart for my 12.9 iPad Pro M2. Recommendations for folding the case with and without keyboard. Ooh, another religious discussion. Okay, Alex, dive into it. I have the Apple one and I love it. Like I don't, I don't remember how much I paid for it. It works so well. Like it's just, it's such a, a, a enjoy to use. <laughs> Maybe someone else builds a better case, but I just ordered it with the case, with the iPad. I have, I have the one, and the newer one. Let's see if this is the, this is the, this is the older one. Hold on, this is the newer one. And it was a huge improvement too. So this is, uh, but you know, it just it pops up. It swings out like this. Um, and I, I don't know. It's the only complaint that I have with it is that you have to put the pen on the outside and it falls off of my case all in my backpack all the time. So it's hard to store with it, but that's the only, like if it had something to hold on to that, but I haven't found, I used to buy lots of cases and they just, I just now get the Apple ones cause they're built really well and they, they work well. I have a total love hate relationship with, uh, cases for mobile devices, I still use this most of the time on my iPad Pro. And the thing that I like about it, it's, first of all, it's a monster. I think I could probably drop this off of the edge of a cliff 
and it would probably survive because it's incredibly thick. It has a shoulder strap click on. It's got a desktop stand that folds down into it. The it, and to Alex's point, the eye pencil holder is exterior and really solid, and it has never gone away. So every time I've looked for the pencil, there it is. Um, and I do love these hand things. If I'm out in the field and I'm I'm I need data or I need to monitor a shot. I just really like these hand straps that are big enough to let you really use this as an appendage on your arm, grab the pencil, write things. Don't have to look for a desk or any place to put my iPad down temporarily. But the downside of it is it is a big rig and it's complicated and I don't like the way it fits in my backpack and I don't like how it works in the luggage. So there's always these trade-offs. What do you want? Versus what can you put up with in terms, I'd love a smaller, thinner one, but it wouldn't do all the things I want. Hmm. Get, get things perfect. Oh, well. Next question. Maxfield Hunt from San Francisco, California. Are we aware of any safe alternatives to Downey? Looking to download content from the web and YouTube. Hmm. Alex. I'm not sure what the safe the request is. Why why you're looking for something safer? Are you looking for something safer than Downey or cheaper than Downey? Uh, Downey is the best. Like it is, it, I use it all the time. So Downey is a program where you just, you literally cut and paste the URL of anything that has any video on the web and it just downloads it. And it downloads live streams. It downloads, uh, it'll download the, uh, it'll download all the segments for a live stream, which is a little bit of a pain. Um, but it will just grab video off the web. If, if it's being delivered to your web page, generally Downey can pull it down. It'll also download the captioning and everything else if you want to. Um, and, uh, I, you know, a lot of times we get, you know, I'm presenting it here or my, uh, my wife needs it for, a for one of her shows that she needs to have it there. And so I, but it's so quick and easy and fast. I don't know why, uh, I wouldn't use anything that was free. Um, and I don't think Downey's that expensive, but if you're on a Mac and you're trying to do this, it's, I mean, it's the app to download stuff off the, off the web, in my opinion. You could do screen captures or something else, but I wouldn't, I would, it's the, it's really the right one to use. It's worth yeah, it. I use Downey as well. And I hadn't heard that about it not being safe, but I, I think it's safe. I think he's looking web. for, he must, I'm only guessing he's looking for something less expensive because it's Downey is, is, I don't know. I don't know how you get safer than Downey to download yeah. that stuff. Interesting. All right. Next question. Junior Grant from New York City asks, Alex, I'm thankful for you and the Office Hours family. Like you, Alex, I enjoy the creative side of cooking. I have an idea for a mobile cooking show using family and friends' kitchens. What is a solid two to three camera setup and breakdown production kit? Alex. Yeah, I mean, so I'm working on that. I'm working on, on a little kit that's going to let me do that with a, basically a 1510. I think about things in 1510s because those are kind of the size I can I can check you know, when I go somewhere. Um, the, the thing that I've been experimenting with is the um, Link 360s. So and what I really wanted was to get Link 360s that are that I have an API for so we can control the cameras or someone can do it remotely. But right now it's still a Link 360 with a laptop. Um, and then those are really small and easy to mount. Um, I'm sorry, the Insta360 links, where we keep on saying the wrong thing here. So the Insta360 link, um, I still think is the best one to use. You can sit there and put them around. And what happens is you have a drop down in their software and you can you can you know, reframe them. And then basically where I'm kind of going is there's one wide shot with me talking. Um, there's a close up of the, um, uh, the close up, uh, uh, there's a close up of the the burner and a close-up of the cutting board. And then if you added another one, there'd be something else that you might want to show. And those are the three shots that you really want in the cooking um, area. And you could even get, um, uh, 
you know, an, a Mac Mini with four of the, you know, Thunderbolt inputs um, and plug it all in there and run something like either Mimo Live or jump into Zoom or do those mm-hmm. kinds, of, kinds of things. And then you a couple of the, uh, what I'm going with it is the Nanlite 6Cs, which you can kind of just throw up in different um, different places to kind of give you a little bit of light. And the um, either the DJI or the Road Goes as a mic uh, to go into that. And I think it's a, you know, I've been building parts of that kit. I've been a little bit uh, busy on my end. So I haven't done as much as I, as, as I should, but I'm, but those, that's the kit that I'm kind of playing with right now. And I think that it's a pretty solid uh, cooking kit and we're hoping to do more of it as we get to the end of this year. Um, next question. I'm sorry. I took over again. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> I actually misread that question. I thought he was looking for a show about mobile cooking, like what Jose Andreas does, go set up a kitchen somewhere for an emergency. I thought I think it's mostly going to different people's kitchens and cooking with them, which yeah, I think is a great yeah, idea. I, I love is that. Is the idea. kitchen mobile or is the show I mobile? Think, I think he's mobile. I think he's going to his friends' kitchens and, and using uh, yeah, that know, makes different, sense. which would be really cool. I, I love the idea. So I think, But yeah. I think that you could do that. And if you're on a Mac, you could do something with Memo Live. Um, and cut between all those cameras, and I think it'd be it'd be a fun fun little show. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Next question. Alexander Knight from Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada, asking: Has anyone on the panel done their own mic repairs? I have a vintage AKG C four fourteen BUULS that produces a faint repeated ticking noise. I found the schematics document. Should I start with the power supply section? Ooh, Mitchell, what do you think? I say stay away from that. That's uh, that's dangerous to go messing with it, especially if it's got any surface mount. But if it's old, uh, they might be uh, – yeah, it's like fixing a, fixing a watch. You're not going to do it. The other problem is it might not be the uh, the power supply. It might be that your iPhone is too close to your microphone. Oh, that's true. A little uh, Wi-Fi interference tick, tick, or something. Tick. Yeah. Alex? Uh, I would only do that if I didn't care about the mic. <laughs> like, you know, like when I when I haven't done when I haven't wired like XLR cables for a long time, which I haven't for a, a while. But if it's been a couple of years, I buy a couple dummy. Like I just grab some cable and I grab some and I and I solder a couple of them to get back up to speed again. I don't just pick it up and start using it. And if I've never done it, I would never do it on an expensive mic. So definitely take this to a specialist and let them take care of it for you. Amen to that. I had something needed to be soldered, and I haven't soldered in about three years. So I went out, and I couldn't find my soldering iron, so I went out to buy a new one. I ordered one from Amazon. It was a nightmare. I didn't understand my soldering iron. I didn't understand the temperature. Everything Less wasn't is more. Did you, get? Did, you get a, is more. did you get a weller, or did you get something else? No, I just got something off Amazon for 20 bucks, thinking, I just oh, got to yeah. heat no, this up. It's that. an old thing. It's a big wire. It's a big lo- – oh, God, it was a nightmare. I didn't weller. have the right rosin. I didn't – it was horrible. Well, 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 weller. Butler, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I should have spent fifty bucks instead of nineteen ninety five for a soldering exactly. kit with rosin core solder in it. Yeah. Uh, Courtney, I have repaired my own microphones, uh, including Sennheisers, uh, but I won't touch the capsule. If there's any problem with the capsule, the capsule needs rebuilt. I send it off to Sennheiser. Uh, but you know, a lot of times, little ticking noises can be things like the. Uh, the XLR connector that's in the back of the microphone, I'm not, I didn't look at this AKG to see what it is. It has a little set screw that holds it in. And if that set screw gets turned just a little bit and it gets loose, it can cause that thing to rock back and forth every time you move the microphone and it'll 
it'll click, it'll make a noise. So if that's what the ticking noise is, look for mechanical things first. And then if it's uh, electronic, it might be a capacitor that needs to be replaced, especially if it's fairly old, a leaky capacitor. It depends on the type of capacitors that are in there. You may not be able to replace them very easily if they're vintage. Uh, so you might want to leave that to a professional that has stock for that particular microphone. If you can't find the exact replacements, I wouldn't attempt it. I will say it's getting harder and harder to find technicians who can work on these classic mics, too. I, there used to be a guy in Chicago who was famous. He would take all the old microphones, and he was just a guy who loved working on them. He had a beautiful bench. But I think maybe about 10 years ago, I heard he passed away and his wife sold out all his parts and stuff like that. So he's gone now. It's really hard to find somebody with that that historic knowledge to be able to get in and work on these truly vintage pieces of equipment. So if you're thinking about doing it, do it now. There are fewer and fewer people who are capable. Let's go to the next question. James Brooks in New York asking, uh, is the iPhone 15 still having overheating issues or it's been resolved? Thanks. Alex? Never had them. I've just never had a problem with overheating. I've had a problem with overheating my Sony camera, but not my my phone. So I haven't, haven't seen this problem. Um, I think most of it had to do with people doing, so I believe that most of it was because people were porting, they were doing that transfer where they transfer one phone to the other. And there's an enormous amount of work that your phone has to the do. The indexing. And so for the first couple of yeah. days, the indexing was like going crazy and yeah. it made the phone hot. Um, I don't do that. So as a result, I mean, I just install things as I need them. Um, and so I just leave everything behind otherwise. And so, uh, so I don't, I think I didn't experience that because I wasn't trying to do all that at one time. Courtney. And if you're trying to stream, uh, something, it depends on your distance from the cell tower. Uh, if you're far away from the nearest cell tower, it's going to crank the RF power up and it's going to get that phone very hot. So you'll, it, it'll vary depending upon how you're using it and where you're using it. So some of those overheating problems may be caused by situations where the person wasn't near a cell tower and it was cranking up the RF power in order to hit the closest cell tower. And that will heat the phone up quite a bit. We're moving to my favorite question of the day. Next. Uh, it's from Evan Troxell in Talent, Oregon. Uh, I'd love to hear a couple of stories behind Courtney's hats. I know there's something there. It's the Gooden Chapeau Collection show. We need to do that. Courtney, what, talk yeah. about your hats. I get them from a variety of places. I get them from work. I get them from people. I And for a while there, uh, a former employee of mine was working in the PR department at Warner Brothers. So I would he would give me hats all the time. So I have... Lots of Warner Brothers movies hats, uh, and uh, some of them are, I have some of them that are signed by Chuck Yeager. I have some of them that are uh, uh, very old, you know, the original MacGyver hat, because I knew the producer on that show. Work. Sometimes I work on a lot of promotional stuff, so I'll get uh, swag, you know, they'll give you a hat if you work on the promotional stuff for a feature, so uh, you don't even have to work on the feature. And then I have a lot of Dexter swag from working seven years on that show because I have jackets and uh, hats and, and, and there's a new hat every year. So you get the, you know, fourth fourth season hat, the fifth season hat, the sixth season hat. I have a Glee hat because I worked on that show for a while. And at the end of the, uh, a lot of the times uh, the, uh, on a, a serial TV show on a, uh, sitcom or something, each of the individual cast members may have their own hat to give out to the crew uh, at the end of the season as a little parting gift uh, 
as a Christmas gift at the end of the season. So you collect a lot of hats that way. So just lots of hats. They all don't have original stories necessarily with them. Some of them, uh, they are mostly functional to keep the sunlight off the dome. <laughs> have you uh, ever considered indexing and, and doing a database of your entire hat collection? No, I've lost more hats than I have. <laughs> I was cleaning out my car last night uh, to go to, we're going to dinner and I have to carry a lot of people in my car. And so I had to clean out the back seat. And I went, oh, there's that hat. I wondered where that hat went. It's <laughs> under the seat all for about a year and a half. I was looking for that hat. But yeah, they go. get lost everywhere they show up. Next question. Uh, a couple of days ago, we were talking about using an avatar. And um, I asked, uh, stipple or head cut? Which would you prefer for a portrait or that avatar picture? Oh, Alex, what do you think about? I, I, they're both kind of the same. <laughs> like if you do, even if you do a search. Dots or lines, like, that's all. Uh, but even when people say head cut, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, they'll, they'll consider it a head cut, but it's, it's dots. So it's, um, but you're, so, uh, so I don't, I don't, yeah, I would say if, if you're t saying dots or lines, I would say dots. Like I think dots is better than the lines. So, so that, that, if, if that's what you're referring to. But again, I think that we're in a, it's a very weird space because, you know, we could get into, I, I bet you there's a big argument here. We could spend a whole second hour of stipple versus head cut. Um, anyways, but what we're talking about is the look between, um, the, uh, what you see like typically in the Wall Street Journal. And I thought as we start to build up templates for, the panelists, we may go through the trouble of, you know, you can get these done, you know, and, and, uh, uh, we might, we might go down that path and see what we can do. Next step, it's some emojis and things like that. Just saying. Mitchell. Exactly. Yeah. I have, uh, a, a filter made by a company called Andromeda. I don't even know if they're around anymore that, uh, did that to varying Not degrees. Well. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really that well. I love the but guys. I, but I, because you brought it up the other day, Alex, I went searching on YouTube, and there's a couple of really good um, uh, uh, tutorials. I was going to say a tut because people hate that. Uh, tutorials uh, that show you how to do it. And I agree, the stipple looked the best because it held the most uh, resolution. Uh, Alex? Uh, uh, yeah, so no, I forgot what I was going to say. Anyway, go ahead. I was thinking back, you know, the, my favorite representation of a, a person technology. You remember the opening of the Alfred Hitchcock thing and some really serious artists, probably with a Japanese background because they, they used to be so brilliant at this, had done his outline in just like five strokes. But it was clearly Alfred Hitchcock and an artist who is really good, who can capture a person in a minimal number of things. Uh, Pablo Picasso used to be able to do that brilliantly. John um, Lennon did it. Yeah, yeah. Th those are the, the ones that I go, wow, like four lines and it's him. That, but that's really hard to do. That takes some serious artistic talent. Uh, next question. Patrick Olson from Eugene, Oregon, asking, just curious, does running a stack of Mac minis call for a stack of UPSs to power them? Alex, what say you? One of the big advantages of the Mac uh, in general is that it's very low power. <laughs> so that's the big advantage that they have. Uh, I could probably run uh, the stack of Mac minis that I have on my, it's part of all the computers that I have are all on one 1500 VA. And I think it's rated right now at 18 minutes that it would run. So um, no, you don't need a stack of them. Um, but I would get one big, I mean, one or two large uh, UPSs, large-ish, which are the 1500 VAs um, or what I'd probably start with. I get those because that's kind of the minimum size where you can pull the battery out. 
and swap it out. So that's that's what I what I generally get, and they're about one hundred and fifty dollars each. Courtney, yeah, that, I agree with Alex. Uh, a big uh, a a big single uh, US, UPS uh, to handle them all. But what I used to do is I used to get these eleven uh, inch notebooks, notebook PC computers. And I would put, you know, if if the stuff is just supplying, you know, still images or a running loop or something, you know, if you're just using them as a as a video source or as a still source, it's not doing any heavy lifting. And I would use those uh, because they have the built-in battery, and you can power plug in their power supplies to them. They run on; they'll run twenty four seven. And if the power goes out, they keep running for another three or four hours. Uh, without dropping a, a stitch so you know they'll keep running so i use my repurpose my old laptops to run uh kind of in a headless mode with them i set them up so that they'll run closed without going to sleep and then if the power fails the battery takes over you don't worry for about uh two hours and the, bat- the power comes back on they come back on and they keep running so that's how i i repurpose all my old little laptops for uh, video sources next question Vic Hernandez from Springfield, Missouri. We don't talk about editing too much. And my question is, how do you like the first two minutes of this from PBS? So I watched it. I saw the link, and so I went to look at it. And I liked it in general. I will say it looks a little dated. I think it came out of 2000 and what was it, 15, 16, something like that. Um, I have done things like that. And I tell you, I, it, it, it surprised me how hard it was to put together. And, and just to describe it without having you have to sit through a couple of minutes and watch it. Um, the editor decided to let the people who were the interviewees in the story tell the opening. So you cut from one person telling a, a line and then the next person, very short snippets, and they build with multiple people, essentially the script for the opening of the show. Um, it is a lot of work to do that because while you might have the actual what they say, when you I know this is for me as an editor, when I sit down to cut it together, I always think to myself, do I have a smooth through line? Is it really telling the story well? And in those kind of circumstances, I often find that, oh, uh, the, of my first five little snippets, one, three, and five are great. Two and four don't seem to fit in real well. And so I work a little bit to try to make it smoother. Can I edit it a little tighter or whatever? Um, I found a little of that there. In the real, in, in the in the ideal world, I might be able to say, can you go out and reshoot those two things or can you get that person? Are they available to to just punch up those things so that it all seems smoother? I found a little erraticalness in that. But overall, I love the idea of getting away from third-party narration and let the people who are most central to the story tell the story if you can. Uh, it just requires more work to do it this way than to do it the traditional, you know, either voiceover or script and narration way. Alex, what do you think? Did you watch it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. The only part I didn't like is when they tried to do green screen because it didn't look very good. Like so, their so their keys weren't great. Uh, they're a little hard along the edges. But the stuff of intercutting it, I think it's a great way to establish uh, the experts that you're going to use throughout the entire show. So it's you're kind of you know getting you into these are experts and this is part of it. I thought it had a lot of great energy. I thought the animations looked really good. So overall, I'd say yeah, this is a a good uh, good example of some some pretty great production. It is a lot of work, but PBS was. For some of these kind of, or Nova, you know, Nova is kind of the gold standard for a lot of this stuff, um, or yeah, close to the gold standard for a lot of this stuff because they, they're willing, they have the budget to do some pretty in- interesting things. Very cool. Let's go to the next question. 
Gordon Lake, Los Angeles, California. I purchased $50 Y-Star SDI HDMI scalar converters for monitors that can't display 30p from switchers. They work, but all other scalers start at three times the price. Should I be worried? Hmm. Alex, you think you should be worried? Uh, if it works, it's fine. <laughs> it's just if it works for what you're doing, uh, sure. Uh, the things you have to wa- watch is it being unreliable. It may not last forever, so have a backup. Maybe get two of them or test them both. Uh, it, you know, a lot of times power supplies don't don't work forever. Make sure to check to make look at the monitor and make sure that you're getting the same color, that you're not getting any kind of breakup, that you're not seeing any kind of, uh, you know, like very small little specks of, of light that might be going into the, into the compression. But I've definitely had SDI to HDMI converters that cost 50 bucks. Um, I buy ones from AVU, maybe 80 bucks or something like that, that, um, that, that work just fine, but they do break. I mean, they just suddenly, or you put them into some situation, they're like, oh, I can't do that. And you don't know why, because yesterday you could. And, and so, um, so I will say that when you're under $100 on an HDMI to SDI or SDI to HDMI, you're kind of in a place where I wouldn't use them for production, um, but I use them to deliver signals sometimes to, um, I won't put them into the core of my content. What I use them for is to put them on a monitor. I, I need another convenience monitor over here. And I've got cheap ones that are oftentimes taped to the back of the monitors. We just plug in the SDI and it goes HDMI out. And I have some of those that are really cheap. Like SDI to HDMI converters are like 30 bucks. Um, anyway, so those are, uh, but I would, uh, but I, but I, they're disposable, you know, and I keep them in my backpack and throw them at, you know, just throw them at monitors if I need them. Courtney? Yeah, I use a lot of the $30 ones myself uh, and have been happy with them. The, the one that you pointed to is good because it has a loop through, SDI loop through. So that if you're sending one signal to a whole row of monitors, the same signal like, you know, lo- monitors in a lobby or something, you can go into one, out of that one, into the next one, out of that one, into the next one. Uh, so you can only run one cable to all of them. Uh, and they seem to work okay. Uh, I haven't had any problem if they work at the resolution uh, they don't have really, really uh, uh, agile scalers in them. So if you hit it with a PSF, uh, you know, format uh, SDI, it may choke on it. Or if you hit it with uh, 1080i, it may not like it. Or if it, you hit it with, you know, 60p, it may not like it. So uh, you got to be careful. If it works with your setup, I'd say they'll probably be pretty reliable one if they're working. Yeah, I remember reading a story about when VLSI, very large-scale integration, was coming into chips and things like that. They were talking about how a lot of things that used to take really complicated chip arrays would now get much simpler and easier. And I kind of think of these things as one of those. Somebody probably figured out a chip that had the ability to do most of this work, and they could get them inexpensively. So suddenly you've got a spate of new products that did something you used to have to pay way more for, did it cheaply, and did it pretty reliably. Not quite as good as the old flexibility. And again, I would highly, I would highly recommend not using these type for production in your signal flow. Like I don't use them in the signal flow. I use them to deliver to monitors. I have extra ones sitting around, and I can put them out there if I need them. Um, But do not put do not put these cheap ones into your signal flow. Um, It it really will add a variable that you don't want to add. Yeah, well, that's protection and safety, and that's you know if your whole show is pivoted on this one piece of equipment and you've spent way less than you otherwise would have may not be the best solution. I agree yeah, with that plus, 100%. if you use them in the signal flow, they may not carry audio. They may mess up your audio. You know, There's a lot of metadata that goes along in that SDI signal yeah. that is carried along with it and may not pass all that stuff. All right, let's go to the next question. 
Douglas Carmichael asked, uh, would there be a Mac OS equivalent to central control? Alex? I don't know. I, 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 I thought that central, I mean, I haven't used central control enough to know. So I, I don't, I don't, I thought that you could still access it from, from a Mac. Um, but I'm not sure what you're trying to, I guess the question is, what are you trying to do with central control on a Mac? Is it, can it do everything that central control do? Uh, and I don't know the answer until you start talking about the, uh, what you're trying to execute. So, you know, you don't want to match feature for feature between two, two things. You want to say, do both of these things solve the problem I'm trying to solve? So let us know what you're trying to do with it and then we can tell you. Yeah, I'm completely ignorant about the PC side too. Courtney, you're, you're very, very well served in that. Do you, uh, what is, what does central control specifically do in the PC world? I have no idea because I don't use central control. Okay, there we go. So I'm sorry. I was, I, I, sorry. I was, I, maybe it's something I should look into, but you know, I haven't. Yeah. Well, hmm. A lot of people talk about it. So let's, let's give it a shot. All right. Um, next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada. What is QSTAR in AI research and why does it matter? Uh, John Preto. Hugh Courtney, as open AI turns, Courtney. <laughs> oh boy, this is the latest, greatest uh, saga of the, of the ongoing saga. QSTAR is supposedly this breakthrough technology that OpenAI had that was mentioned to the board that they've had some breakthrough. And it's called QSTAR, supposedly related to math, some very high-level math functionality. Uh, is all I've known. Reuters uh, released this overnight. And so this is the latest, greatest uh, technology that was supposedly released, brought to the board by Ilya. Uh, QSTAR, it's called. Interesting. I've never heard the term before myself. What does it do? What do it do? It's a... It, so uh, my understanding of it, based on the Reuters article and a couple other things that I've that I've read um, as we've gone over the night overnight, is that um, QSTAR is a, is a, it's a project. It's not necessarily a technology. It's just the, that's the project name uh, for the, the and and a lot of times they're they're measuring intelligence when they talk about AGI. They're they're um, they're measuring intelligence by math. What what um, what math problems can it solve? Uh, which I think is a horrible way to think about AGI. Like I, I think of thinking of it that that's intelligence is, I mean, it's pretty pretty limited because it's like the least complicated thing of intelligence. I mean, you know, understanding people um, is the more complicated thing. So they're, they're but they measure that. And so uh, I think that right now it's it, it can handle, if I remember correctly, that kind of the known is like fifth or sixth grade math. So if it, if it was, um, so that if it suddenly jumped to, hey, it can do algebra or it can do, trig or it can do something because large language models, what they're really good at is grabbing a lot of text and then sitting there just adding them together and putting it together and giving you something that looks reasonable. But if you start asking to do math problems, a lot of times the, the large language model, is, it's just not the way it thinks. It's not the way it works right now. And so they've been trying to get to a point where it can be precise. The idea is, is that math is a representation of being able to be uh, logical and precise with that logic. Um, and uh, and be able to manage a complex set of variables and and then deliver a a, a a complex answer, and so if they saw some big jump from one math equation, I mean John can correct me if I'm wrong, but if they saw a big jump from a math equation to another math equation, I think that's one of the things that QSTAR is really focused on. Interesting. Next question. Danny Grizzle from Longview, Texas, has a question for us. Vintage mic repair. I read somewhere that valves and vacuum tubes are only manufactured in Russia now. Parts problems? I've heard the same thing. Mitchell? 
Yeah, I've heard it, and I've also heard that there is a a problem with the parts, but a lot of them have been stockpiled and or being imported from uh, from another place. But there are a bunch of different companies that do it. Um, Soviet Tube, uh, Reflector, SED, SPLB, JSC, Svetlana, uh, Ilyanov, JSC, Voskhod, and Novobrisk are some of the companies that are making tubes. Yeah, I have found, I have some vintage mics, and I have gone out in the marketplace and looked for things, and it's getting harder and harder to find parts for them because they're just, they're old and rare. In fact, the SM5B I have behind me, one of the problems notorious for that is that the the foam on it outgassed and it would just fall apart. So one day I saw a replacement for that, and I went online, <laughs> I I... I'm almost embarrassed to say it. I just wanted to refresh it, and I wanted it to look good, and I wanted to keep that old mic because it was historically my first professional mic. And I think I paid like 80 bucks for a piece of foam that's undoubtedly worth a dollar fifty to manufacture, but you just can't find them anywhere. So somebody said, listen, I pro- they probably knocked them off and figured out they knew somebody who made phone stuff. So they made it for the aftermarket, and they got a couple of guys like me who said, I, wanted, I want this, and I'm willing to pay way more than it's actually worth just to refresh my old vintage thing that I love. If you can't find something like that, they're not big companies manufacturing a lot of these old parts. They just don't exist anymore. And some of them are going bad as they age. It's just the nature of the business. Next question. John Preto, Las Vegas, Nevada. I've got something to share on this happiest of days. Alex, John, what do you got to share? Alex, can I do a screen share? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, So the good thing about sitting in the hospital for several days is I got to search around on stuff that I don't normally search. And I I came across this, this, this uh, showroom was designed like 10 years ago. And because of the pandemic, this thing has really kind of taken off here lately. And I thought you guys might enjoy this. What, what this is, is a shop in London on park lane. You see on the outside bottom there, there's a fuselage inside the window there at this very, very high rent district here in London. And then what he did is connect this giant video wall to the outside of this jet here. And then he can actually show actual size jets as you go through and select the actual interior that he's showing here on the video wall is actual size so that the people can come in to the showroom but more importantly, now he's doing all these presentations on Zoom. And this is this is for customizing your your own private jet. Yes, exactly. If you want a Gulfstream six hundred and fifty, this is the place to go. This is where it's, this is this is it right here. You go through <laughs> these variables. You choose <laughs> choose no the plane, choose your range, choose the passenger, <laughs> and it brings up the number of aircraft. And then you can drill down all the way to the range of how far the plane can fly. Uh, all the maintenance costs, et cetera, et cetera. The actual interior as life-size as it could be with all the colorations. And he's doing all these presentations online now. That's awesome. And this this is, uh, him on. I, I thought, what a great use of technology. And you guys might. It's like great. That is that. fascinating. And, you know, I used to do work for McDonnell Douglas. And I was talking to one of the people uh, who said, you got to talk to Bob at some point. You know, Bob makes videos. But he only makes one copy of every video 
and he does really well. And I said, what in the world? He makes one, yeah, he makes one video and sells it. Turns out that he was doing the owner copies of uh, custom Learjets. So he would go in and produce a copy. This is your jet. Here's how everything works. He would have everything produced and one copy would be put on the table in the jet when the jet was delivered. And so, you know, the the most bespoke process in the world. You, well, it can get it, it can get deeper. Um, a uh, I don't know how much detail I should get into. So, but in, let's just say a, a naval military uh, the budget for a naval military training training uh, system uh, can be as much as three hundred million dollars just for one. <laughs> And it's one. It's for that ship. You know, like it's, here's your, it's, here's, here's your here's manual. Your here's your manual. Three hundred million dollars for the manual. Talk about a hundred fifty dollar wrench. Three hundred million dollars for the. I, I thought, you know, when I found out, I was like, I could easily do that for two hundred fifty million. <laughs> so <Yeah>. anyway, <laughs> they had a whole hangar. They would bring in a jet. And they would mm-hmm. literally tour through it and shoot everything and explain how everything worked. And then that one video, I think it was back in the days when it was VHS tape. We left with it. I just, I just want to know. Uh, my my big thing is, is that I, I just want to know who, who, where the kitchen area where they make the little triangular sandwiches. That's what you want to know. <laughs> I mean, you can get the seats and everything, but the best part of it is the, the little sandwiches. The, the little, little sandwiches sandwich. are great. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all right, let's go to the next question. Rion Smith from Trinidad, West Indies. Uh, thanks to the Office Hours team for guiding me to set up on-screen graphics via their suggestion of Lumakine out one HDMI of OBS into an ATEM 8 to 10% gamma worked well. Alex? I, I brought it up here. Hold on one second here. Let's see. Um, doo-doo-doo. Uh, here's the, um, here it is. I don't have the audio to it. I have to admit, I watched this little clip. I was like, I want to go. Uh, this isn't it. Hold on, it'll jump. Uh, it's a little longer. Hold on. I, I know I, I I didn't realize it was so long. I must have been very lucky. So this was. Uh, let's see. Maybe it was. Uh, sorry, I had it immediately, and I I thought that I just happened to jump into it. This looks like, by the way, an amazing party. Um, that I uh, let's see. No, I just ruined it here. Oh, there we go. There's one. I was like, I want to go. Anything involving steel drums, I'm in. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's see here. He's got, um, this is, uh, sorry. It was, here it is. I think it'll be, it'll come up when they walk up here. I love watching what uh, people who are watching office hours, you know, what they're doing with it. There we go. So let's see. I think that she's. Here, and I think when they cut to it, there you go. There it is. There's that lower third. It looks great. And that's just using a Luma key. I mean, it's it's swinging in and I assume swinging out, but that's just using a Luma key without any kind of key fill or anything else. And it looks like it, uh, it works great. And it looks like, a, again, let us know when you're doing these streams. Uh, we're, we're, uh, <laughs> we can live vicariously. It looked like SPX graphics kind of to me. That they have. Yeah, but that that's just that was just. Uh, I mean, I don't know what he used for the. Oh, he said uh, HDMI from OBS. To oh, do that. Okay. Yeah. So, but it, but a key, the key is no key fill. That was just Luma key, in, you know, to to put that out. Looks good. There you go. Great work, Great. man. Let's go to the next question. Pedro Gonzalez at Oklahoma City asks, "What is the best Black Friday camera deal that you're thinking of actually purchasing?" Oh, you left out the gobble gobbles, the Thanksgiving question. Gobble Alex? gobble. Uh, camera deal. That's okay. I got thrown thrown a little bit because I, I know that Chad had sent me something 
this morning that is going to be – oh, it's – um. The uh, I, I have a bunch of these small rig, the VB99s. These are the ba- V-mount batteries, and they're $100 off, which is a lot, <laughs> like a lot, a lot off. So I may buy a couple of those to add to my collection of them because you can never have too many camera batteries. Oh, next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway asked, Sony's ZV line of cameras stands for Generation Z Vloggers. And if it's included in the E in the model name, it signifies an E-mount for interchangeable lenses. Do you agree that Sony has failed with their strategy as Gen Z primary use use their phones? Mitchell, what do you think? Well, a long time ago, I had a discussion with a Sony rep about VHS versus Betacam, uh, Betacam tape uh, for your home viewing. And Sony's opinion on it was... Uh, we don't want to own a uh, percentage of uh, VHS because everybody's uh, after it. We'd rather have 5% of the uh, video market out there. And if that 5% is Betacam, we're happy with that. I think Sony feels the same way about their cameras. Is Yes, there's more Gen Zers out there using their iPhones. But Sony is getting more and more of that share of potentially a low-end camera or um, webcam cameras. So I think they've got a uh, plan and it's a long-term plan. Alex? Sony lost the Betacam VHS wars because of things we, I'm probably not going to talk about on the show, but <laughs> they, they, they wouldn't do something that ever the VHS would. And that was the, and that was the deciding factor. They, they definitely tried to compete in that market, uh, but they, they didn't because they put, they drew a line in sand, which I totally respect. Um, but that line cost them the the uh, penetration. But they owned 5% of the market completely. They did until, you know, the funny thing is the end of Sony Betty Cam, I think we've talked about this in the past, uh, about, I think it was once a year, once every three years or once every five years, I can't remember which, they would take the SR decks, the, the SR tape machine that was in LA and send it back to Japan and they'd have it recalibrated. There's only two of them. There's only two of the ones that made the, the, the Betacam SRs. And every te- television station was based on Betacam SRs. And um, they, uh, uh, th- when they did it, the, the earthquake happened. Um, and so the earthquake destroyed both of the machines. And they were so close to the end of the, are we going to use tape, that they just didn't, just chose not to build them. And all of television went into panic mode. Like anybody that wasn't working on film or, or bigger things. I could, I, you know, I, I was digging through my thing because they were buying SR tapes for $1,000 each, just used, you know. And of course, I couldn't find any because I was like, are, this are will you never be worth the anything. SP tape? No, the SRs. These are the high res, the 444s. Um, the beta S, the SRs were the 444 um, tapes. They were the higher, they're above metal. SP. Um, I don't know okay. whether they're metal or not. I just know they're a lot more expensive than the SPs. Um, anyway, so the, uh, uh, but I had them because I was shooting 444, and so I had a bunch. I had a pile of them that I couldn't find because I thought, who would ever want these again? And I found out that you should. The problem is, you, you this, this is how you become a pack rat: is that you throw things away, and then they're worth twenty grand. <laughs> you know, so, so twenty tapes sitting around. So the um, uh, anyway, Sony is crushing the market here. Like they are. I mean, just so you know, from from a vlogging camera, I hate their naming conventions. But if you talk to per, uh, creators, they're all using Sonys. Like, in, I mean, it is – they have a Sony creator camp that they do, that they do talks and they do all kinds of things. They, you know, like, like two or three days where they bring all these creators in and they take care of them and they make sure that they understand how to use their cameras. They build – they've really built lots of different versions. There's this overheating problem, but it only happens because we're using it as webcams. If I was using this Z, the ZV-E1 or whatever that I have here – 
probably work fine. Um, or ZEV1. I, I can't I can't figure that out. ZVE10. No, no, no. I have a one as well. You keep on saying ten. I have both a ten and a one. There's the so the, there's the EVZ1 I think and the ZEV1 uh, E1. I don't know. Anyway, so I have two different cameras. They're very close to the same size and they're obviously very close to the same name, which is crazy. But Sony is just nailing this market. And it's because of the autofocus. It's because the color science is working out of the gate. So it's not that the color science, like Black Magic, can, do, can look like a Sony and can look as good, but it takes work. When you turn it on, it doesn't look as good. And Black Magic should put way more into their LUTs so that they just, there's things that you can select that look pretty at the beginning. Sony's look pretty when you turn them on. You know, and so those are the kind of things that, that they've done really, really well. Um, so when I see, I mean, it's like nine, the penetration is 90, 95% of the higher end bloggers. Yeah, people are doing some stuff with their phone, but eventually they, they graduate to a camera. And so far, I mean, Apple's starting to probably erode that. But right now they graduate to a camera and nine times out of 10, they graduate to a Sony, you know, to do that. And so, um, so I think that they're, they're doing really well um, in, that, in that area. Nice. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Which is better, Lazy Boy, Other Recliner, or this? I didn't look at the link, but boy, what is. a perfect Thanksgiving question, Paul. Oh, I so want that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little dental looking to me. So I think it would look very weird. I think that jumping into Zoom from that would be a little too much. But but I would yeah. say that the only reason that I, I, I just really... I, I thought about getting something like this and the only thing that, and there's ones that are less expensive. There's three or $4,000 and, and people use them for gaming and everything else. Number one is I think you'd look really odd in, um, in your zoom thing. But the other thing <laughs> is like you, cause your face would like your skin would be different and you would look very, Maybe I don't think that's the most. Double chin. No, I don't think it would. I think it would make it much, much worse. And so, so anyway, <laughs> And then, but my my big thing is, I, I think I, I would just uh, go back to Wally. I mean, the 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 movie Wally just has me always careful when I see something that reclines way back. I'm like, I do not want to end up like that. <laughs> so, so like like I just go, you know, like I'm just not ready to you know not you know be running around on that. So, but it it does look cool. Uh, it would be a conversation piece. There's not enough monitors. You need like ten monitors there, and then I might be interested. Ah oh, man, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to say you could have your dentist come over and do a little work on your, you know, incisors while you're while you're <laughs> yeah, exactly. the root canal on the side. Uh, the other thing I noticed is that uh, the table at this angle, I have enough of a problem with my mouse pad that is now attached to my lazy boy. Your your mouse is going to keep sliding off this table as will your keyboard or your microphone or anything else that you put on it because it's at a, such an angle to keep it at a good angle for your, you know, with you leaning back that all the stuff's going to keep falling in your lap. So I don't understand how that's going to work. And it's $8,000. And it's probably got that bonded leather finish that'll flake off after about a year and a half of sitting in it. I'm sitting in a lazy boy right now. And like I say, the bonded lever fl flakes off after about a year and a half. Oh, man. All right, next question. Thank you. Moving Paul. on with Douglas Carmichael. Douglas's question is, what kind of backpack do you prefer for your mobile production equipment? Would a backpack like one of these without a padded space for a laptop still be safe for a laptop? Alex, what do you think? 
Yeah, I use a I use a tactical five eleven uh, rush twenty four. I've used it for fifteen years. Uh, I've the one that I'm using now. I think is uh, oops, I, I already this is this is not that. This is the one that he was suggesting, um, and I, I thought that maybe this was like some kind of camera case, um, but but the one that I uh, one that I use is a is a let's see tactical five dot eleven rush twenty four. And I these used to be when we um, uh, this is what mine. Let's see. This is what mine looks like, and it's, uh, but mine's black. <laughs> so anyway, um, and I have you know you can get your names. I would have we would have our names printed on them. Um, put a logo here. I usually have a Pixcore logo here or whatever, and we even put them on the handles here because all of us had them. This was standard issue for uh, for folks at Pixelcore. So everybody had the same backpack. We just had names that were all on them on the handles and everything else. Otherwise, we grab everybody's wrong, wrong one doesn't have a lot of padding and it does have a lot of pack pockets when i need to pad things it's got a big cavity there now mine is a little um hold on it's hard for me to get right now but because it's got webbing the other thing i added was lots of webbing straps to it so i can strap on a tripod on the back of it and i can put other things on it so i've kind of mine's got more accessories <laughs> to it um but but i it's extremely durable i don't think that uh, I don't think any of them ever has ever broken, like um, knock on wood, but I don't think anything ever has broken on any part of this backpack. Um, and you can put, if you if you have a smaller laptop, well, even the 16, uh, the laptop and an iPad will go in the little soft area in your back as well. So then those are safe right against your back and then everything else is in the front area. It's a, it's a great uh, backpack. It's not very expensive. Right now, it is on sale for $100, and uh, they have never given me one for free. So it's, this is a completely uh, a sponsor-free uh, recommendation that this is my backpack, and that is what I've been using for a long time. At the risk of going a little bit long because it's the top of the hour, we have a couple more questions, but we'll slide by because it is Thanksgiving. Uh, for me in backpacks, the only thing that I decided, I'm, I use a case logic, and the reason is the interior is bright yellow. And I, I have spent too many times in a production situation where I'm looking for an adapter or a cable, and it's in a corner of a black bag, and it's really hard to find unless I have my Magnolite or something in my mouth. So uh, I love backpacks that have switched to a brighter interior just for that reason. If I'm not in production, if I'm just using it, I'm fine with the dark ones. But that's that's personal preference on my part. Let's go to the next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. California is outlawing small gas generators. The Honda EU2200i can't be shipped to a California address. What's a good alternative? Alex, you want to start this off? Yeah, ship to John Preto in Nevada and then have either him ship it to you or just go visit John. Say hi. Hang out, hang out in the pool. <laughs> so um, that's what I do. I, there's a lot of stupid things that California does. And when they ban something, I have friends in Reno and I just have them ship, ship those. to. I just uh, use that address and I have it shipped to Reno and then they ship it to me. <laughs> so that's and, and then enough of that. So I haven't heard about this ban. I know that Costco is selling these because I saw them in the store the other day, the Furman's, uh, 1,000 watts. And this is a triple fuel, so it can run on gasoline, uh, propane, or natural gas. So maybe that might work and, for you it, in California. What What is the reason that they're outlawing them? They burn dirty. They just burn real dirty. It's like lawnmowers. Yeah. Lawnmowers are not. Remember, there's so, so a few people that have them. It's an air quality issue. <laughs> 
Karen. Yeah. Anyway, so the um the uh but but I you know it's such a the reason I'm so frustrated about this one specifically is that the Honda is that specific one is just the most elegant generator. It's It's quiet. It's the most. I have one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if I needed one, I would just send it to a friend at another state and get it get it there and you know not whatever. We have another question left here, so let's dive in. Last question from Idris Haji from Fairfax, Virginia. What an iPhone rig and tripod would you recommend for travel or recording short video in an office or home? So many choices. Alex, what's your favorite? Um, I mean, for really doing production, I'm really happy with the Peak Design. Um, and uh, so the Peak Designs have worked really, really well. The uh, Thank you, Hosmuk. Um, and uh, the, but the, the ones that I use for production are the small rigs. So the small rigs are there. The m- new moment I'm kind of looking interested in based on the Apple behind the scenes. But the small rigs um, that uh, that first, uh, yeah, that I think those are the ones that that I that I, I have a lot of those laying around for a lot of different phones, and they've worked exceptionally well. And they they mount they they mount the moment lenses. Courtney, you wouldn't use a DJI Ronin rig or a gimbal of any kind, or I have an RS two. I wouldn't use that for iPhone rig. Um, I would use the. I mean, I've I've used the Osmos for the iPhone. Um, and Osmos, those have been, yes. yeah, the Osmos and I have, I have an yeah, Osmo for that. I was thinking of rigs, but I, I have an Osmo for that. And then, um, I use the Mi Photo, uh, tripod. Um, it's just really small and it fits on my, on that backpack I just showed you really nicely. So the Mi Photo is the one that I, I tend to use for that. And I've stopped using all tripods in general for my iPhone shooting. I use only monopods. Um, I have an old, pretty heavy one from Manfrotto that I like. I can mount both my iPhone and a light on the top of it because it's got enough weight to counterbalance that. But more often than not now, I'm taking out a small Amazon cheap monopod that's very lightweight, still gets up to my eye level if I want the stabilization of that. And I just find I like the fluidity of being able to use a monopod and unless i'm shooting a speaker where i have to sit there for a half an hour i a monopod works fine for short shots as good or better i think than a tripod so that's me well thank you all for being here happy merry whatever the correct word is uh, thankful thank you giving to you all in america this is the 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 holiday where we're supposed to reflect back and think about all the good things that have happened in life. Uh, this show for me and the people that I know from it has been one of the great joys of the last three years of my life. And I'm looking forward to continuing here for a long time. This does not run without everybody here who's watching me say these words. So thank you for being a part of the community of Office Hours. Thank you for your hundreds of incredibly intelligent and insightful questions that you've added in over the course of the year. Um, Every one of you, even if you just come occasionally and watch a couple of things and get a couple of answers, this doesn't work without you. So we appreciate you tremendously. Uh, The panelists, an unbelievable crew of people that I am so proud to call associates and friends. Uh, It has been transformative in these last few years for me. And I think there's a lot of us on who have been a part of the panel at one point or another who have felt exactly the same way. So thank you, everybody who's ever appeared in one of these boxes uh, for being a part of our lives for the last three years. And certainly, not at all least, there's a huge community behind the scenes who are pushing the buttons 
and connecting things and making sure the audio levels are right. They live in places all over the planet. And one of the most charming things for me about Office Hours is having expanded my uh, personal group of people who I know by first name basis that I can communicate with and, and trade ideas with all over the planet. If I started naming them, it would take me a half an hour because there have been so many of the people who kind of honed their technical chops by working in the back end of this show. I admire each and every one of you. You have taught me so much. So to everybody who you don't see, watch this credit roll at the end. This is exemplars of the hundreds of people who participated in these things to make this show possible. I am thankful to each and every one of you. And at the top of the list, I'm just going to say it, Alex, thank you for making this happen in the original days. Without you, none of this would have been possible. And this has been a delight. Happy Thanksgiving, one and all. Thank you. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Release the balloons. <laughs> Every time someone says release, all I can think is release the kraken. Release the kraken. <laughs> Balloon. And then I, and then I the, this is this is how my, the, the problem with my mind is that it goes, someone says release, I think release the kraken. And then I, and when, as soon as I think of kraken, I think of, um, of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean review of, from, um, Ask a ninja because there is, you know, I have fought an actual Kraken, Kraken, Kraken. You, you, they're not that hard. <laughs> You've never seen the review. It's, it's so the best. Krakens are pushovers. Exactly. One last two minutes against Mothra. By the way, I've been watching that. That is it. Apple TV, whatever it is. The, the oh, new, it's a good. Uh, Maja it, the majestic. Yes and majestic. no. Yes and no. But I, I find it fascinating. I'm just yeah. into episode three. No, I, 